Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. Vertigo has everything you expect to find in a Hitchcock film. A carefully planned murder, brilliant misdirection, suspicion, suspense, surprise, and a thrilling climax. But like all great films, Vertigo both exemplifies and transforms its own genre. Because in Vertigo, we find something more, something haunting and obsessive, something disturbing. Of course, you might argue that Hitchcock is always disturbing. After all, this is the filmmaker who brought us Rope, Psycho, Strangers on a Train, Shadow of a Doubt, Suspicion, and on and on and on. But I would argue that Vertigo is different because the drama in Vertigo comes not from the mechanical workings of the plot, but rather from the deep and unknowable conflict within a man's soul. It is the character of Jimmy Stewart, obsessed, irrational, fragile, cruel, controlling, and desperate, that haunts us. And it's the mystery within that troubled soul that keeps us coming back again and again. This is a great film. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend a visit to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Vertigo along with every other film the Cinephiles has ever reviewed. John and I had an amazing time discussing this masterpiece. So much fun, in fact, that one episode simply couldn't contain it. And so come back this Friday when John and I enter the dizzying world of Vertigo, only on the cinephiles. When were you born? Long ago. Where? When? Tell me. Madeline, tell me. No. Madeline, tell me what it is. Where do you go? No, what I What takes can't you tell away? You. When you jumped into the bay, you didn't know where you were. You guessed, but you I didn't, didn't know. Jump. I didn't jump. I fell. You Why told did me you I jump? fell. Why did you jump? No, I can't tell you. Why did you jump? What was there inside that told no, you to jump? Please. What? What? Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, host, writer, producer over at Collider, and... Uh, all-around lover of film and cinema, and I'm super excited to continue our month of Hitchcock. The month of Hitchcock! <laughs> uh, and especially addressing a film that I've come to really love and enjoy uh, in my later years. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Many people not only believe that this is Hitchcock's greatest film, mm -hmm. but there is a whole list that believes that this, Vertigo, mm -hmm. is the greatest film ever made. Yeah, yeah. Ne I don't disagree with them. I mean, I don't agree with them. Yeah, ne ne neither you or I agree with them. No. I think it's totally – it's a weird thing. It's like I think it's a great film. Mm -hmm. I think it should be on lists. Absolutely. I don't think it's number one. And maybe when we get to the end, we'll kind of discuss that a little more. Sure, sure. Um, uh, first of all, we should say that in addition to us doing this because this is the month of Hitchcock, mm -hmm. it is also a Patreon pick. And Benny Black is the person who picked this for Patreon. Nice. And we'd love to hear Benny. Why did you want us to discuss Vertigo? Hi, everybody. Benji Black from San Francisco here. 
I chose Vertigo because for my money, it's the best Hitchcock film, the best Bernard Herrmann score, and the best representation of San Francisco in a film. Yet I'm curious why we all love it so much, considering it could be argued that it's Hitchcock's creepiest film. I'm looking forward to the discussion, and thanks for the podcast. Wow, interesting thoughts from Benny Black. And there's one other person that I actually picked this as their Patreon. And I, not only do I want to hear their thoughts, but we did this in a slightly different way. So take a listen. Hello, I want to welcome to the Cinephiles a very, very special guest calling it all the way from Tiburon, California, where I grew up. We are welcoming to the Cinephiles my mom, Susan Morris. Welcome to the Cinephiles. Thank you, Steve. I've listened to so many cinephiles with you and John. Well, and as a, a patron of the show, you actually have never turned in your picks for the movies you'd like to hear reviewed. And I do know that Vertigo is one of your favorite films. It is. In every single episode of The Cinephiles, I always ask John and any of our guests how they came to the movie that we're talking about. And I was wondering, knowing already the answer, how did <laughs> you first come to the film Vertigo? At the time that Vertigo was premiered, I was a junior, 1958, a junior in high school, Lowell High School, San Francisco. And Steve, I was dating your father, Mickey Morris, who was a sophomore at Cal, and his fraternity, Kappa Nu, serenaded Kim Novak as she came into San Francisco for the premiere. Do you, do you know how this whole thing with Kim Novak actually happened? So, Kapanu has the letters KN. And as I understand the story went down, a bunch of them got together and said, "We can be the the Kim Novak fan club." And, and there's I, a there's a great picture which is one of my all-time favorites of dad with in the KN sweatshirt with the whole fraternity surrounding Kim Novak and he's two people away from her at the train station. But the serenading, I also want to put it in context for you. It was a moment evocative of uh, those years, Kingston Trio, all of that. That was the era. And the picture with Kim, and she actually seems to tower a bit. She's taller than many of the fraternity guys. <laughs> and as you know, including dad. Including your father, who was maybe 5'7 at the most. Um, uh, with, with, and, with big shoes. Yeah. Thanks. But I wasn't there. I was in school, I presume, at the time. You were, I bet you were sitting at home at my grandparents' house, just super excited and couldn't wait to hear from dad how the whole thing went. No question about that. I, I mean, it was a high point of his life, I can tell you. And you, as you well know, your father couldn't sing very well, but I know he serenaded her. <laughs> Quietly, and, probably. <laughs> probably or not. And that Kim um, Novak, this part I, I do remember hearing that people did stay in contact with her. And oh, really? she was, yeah, Kim Novak didn't fly. And so they knew she would be taking the train. So I think the fraternity often would offer again, anytime you need us to pick you up, to serenade you, we're there. Now, do we really think that the publicists thought that this was not the Capanu fraternity and they all were just the fan club? I don't know. 
but uh, she really was very what gracious about it all. She was their girl. She was the Kapanu uh, Cal um, girl. That's great. You must always think of that every time you watch the movie Vertigo. Well, of course, I think of that. But I also am going to give you a little personal thing, too, which is I grew up in San Francisco. So what I also wanted to just reflect to you, when I saw the film the first time and when I see it again, it I feel I own it. What I mean by that expression is the places that Jimmy Stewart goes to, that Kim Novak goes to, um, are places that were just part of my daily life. Um, I lived three blocks from the Palace of Legion of Honor, which is the museum where right. Madeline goes to look at Carlotta's painting. The Podesta Baldaki florist, the streets, the Argosy bookshop, that was patterned after the Argonaut bookshop, which was a first edition bookshop focusing on the California Gold Rush original books and first edition antiquarian books. The founder and owner lived two doors down from me. Oh, really? When I was growing up. But, so I perhaps put myself into that film. So I will say I remember Vertigo from the very beginning, and it's always had a, not only a warm spot in my heart romantically and as an amazing event, but I love the film. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and sharing Dad's story. Um, and thank you for your support as a patron of the Cinephiles. It is very much appreciated. And of course, thank you for all of your support to me in all of these endeavors. Well, Steve and to John sitting there also in the interview. Thank you. I love listening to the Cinephiles. So that's my dad and his fraternity escorting Kim Novak. And my dad is two people away from her on her right with glasses. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look how young your dad is. I Holy know, right? shit. He's a good-looking guy. Yeah, very good-looking guy. Oh, look at Kim. Incredibly beautiful there. She sure is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so my mom told that story. That's incredible. Wow. Wow. This That's... <laughs> Steve, there's always a wealth of stories with you and your family. Uh, <laughs> and so this is... A fantastic story, and that picture of your dad there picking up Kim Novak is incredible. And, of course, your, your mom is absolutely correct. I've only been to San Francisco, like, twice. Oh, really? But um, the, every time I go, to, every time I watch this movie, I feel like I'm visiting San Francisco again. It's just so – the city is another character in the movie. I, I think it's the most San Francisco movie I can think of. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, there's just something – it has such love for the city, and because, yeah. you know – I was born I was born in San Francisco in Mount Zion Hospital. Both my parents were born in San Francisco. All four of my grandparents were born in San Francisco. Mm. Several of my great-grandparents were born in San Francisco. I'm a fifth-generation Californian and a fourth-generation San Franciscan. Right. And like I have just – even if I didn't love the movie, just seeing the city the way the city is photographed and loved in mm -hmm. this film, it's just like a deep – connection to me yeah in a, in a weird way that's different from any other film i can think of mm -hmm. is just looking at the city yeah do you remember how you first came to it yeah actually it was just a few years ago i had never seen it before and uh, uh i went to see it 
here in LA, as I've said many times on the show, man, um, they show uh, old movies over at those uh, revival houses, right. at the Arrow in Santa Monica and at the Egyptian there in Hollywood. I think I saw it for the first time at the Egyptian in Hollywood, went by myself back when I would love to go see movies by myself. And uh, just sat there and watched it for the first time and enjoyed the – I think it was some new print of it or something like that. And I enjoyed the living hell out of it. I didn't know what to expect. And uh, it's a film that I think is still very modern in its I so uh, in its themes and it's in what it's trying to accomplish, what it's trying to show you. But also in the way uh, it's presented to you. It's timeless, I guess, is a better description for it. And I just remember walking out of the theater going – I've never seen Jimmy Stewart play a role like this, uh, and um, I'm absolutely 1,000% in love with Kim Novak and think she's one of the most gorgeous women that ever walked the planet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. And you had seen some Hitchcock, a fair amount of Hitchcock Sure. I had this. seen, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this one had always been like that one that was out there that I know I have to watch at some point, and uh, I have that way with Hitchcock movies. I, I take my time getting to them. It's it is funny. Vertigo is different. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think you see all the Hitchcock craftsmanship, absolutely. But it's different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, I I think I saw it when I was in college. I don't remember it that well. I'm sure it was on VHS or TV. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't till um, I ended up working on the DVD. So this is like mm-hmm. late '90s, and watched it over and over again. And I don't think I had appreciated it the first time I saw it. Maybe I wasn't 100% paying attention. Yeah. Maybe I wasn't mature enough to kind of d- get into the darkness of the thing. Mm. And it was watching it over and over again that I went, oh, this movie is heavy. It's got heaviness to it. Yeah, you if, you're, if you're a kid in, his tw- in your 20s, there's no way you're getting what's happening in this movie. You you can understand what's happening in this movie, but there's stuff that's happening in this movie that as you get older as a person, lived through life a little bit and gone through some stuff – you feel it viscerally as you're watching it happen, and it unsettles you. Well, yeah, and I think you start to go like, wait, what's happening yeah, here? Yeah. Like, what's really happening deep down? A mm-hmm. um, little bit of pre-production. It's based on the book, um, I'm going to do my best French accent now, okay. uh, De Entre la Mort, mm. uh, which is From the Dead. And it's a French novel, and it's actually the same guys who wrote Diabolique, which, oh. which uh, Hitchcock wanted to get the rights to, mm-hmm. and then they made it as a French film, and he didn't get to do it, yeah. um, which I find interesting. That's a criterion. And uh, oh yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, and he and Alma, as they did on every Alma is his wife, as we discussed in the previous episodes, mm-hmm. as they do with all of their films, they worked on the story and they got all the story beats down before it ever goes out to have a screenplay written. So they've really worked out what it is they want, and they brought in several screenwriters and. First guy, they got a draft. They didn't like it. Got another draft. They didn't like it. And the person where it stuck who finally wrote the final draft is Sam Taylor. And he's the guy who wrote Sabrina. Oh, wow. Which has had many versions of it. And and it's interesting, too, because this is a guy who writes – wrote a romance. Mm -hmm. And I think that his romance chops, maybe that's what, uh, you know, really made it Mm -hmm. so that he could – he's the guy who wrote this screenplay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they cast Jimmy Stewart right away. Hitchcock knew he wanted that, and they went out and cast Vera Miles. Oh. Vera Miles to play the lead. Hitchcock was absolutely certain this is the right person to play the part. <laughs> they brought her in. They had costume fittings. The costumes were designed for her. They painted the Carlotta portrait with Vera Miles, and Hitchcock had got an inflamed gallbladder and had to have gallbladder surgery. Uh-huh. And so the whole movie was delayed. And while the movie got delayed... Vera got pregnant. Oh. 
And so no Vera Miles. Mm-hmm. And so they bring in Kim Novak. And honestly, I can't picture anybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't see Vera Miles conveying that city person that Novak does when she becomes – oh, when she's Judy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That she just conveys that kind of like hard scrabble lived in life that she yeah. would take a job like this because of the money that's involved. Because the kind of person that would do something like this wouldn't necessarily have the greatest morals or, or maybe in a desperate situation to have a little bit of money. So I, I don't know if Vera would have done that. I liked her as the sister in uh, in Psycho. That makes more sure. sense. She's more that kind of character than this kind of character. Yeah, I, th- I think what Kim Novak does in this movie mm. is great. Yeah, um, It's shot in something called VistaVision. <laughs> VistaVision. And VistaVision, there's, there's this moment in film history that's in the 50s when suddenly, mm. you know, film had been the dominant form of entertainment pretty much you know, since the teens, early right. teens, or even 1908, that's when everyone started going to see films, and and films had gotten more popular and more profitable and more popular and more profitable until something came along to compete, and that thing was television. Yeah, and so everyone in the film world started to panic. How can we deliver something that's different from television? And if people are wondering why, when they look at old movies, including Citizen Kane and Casablanca, they're in the same square four by three format as television, well, that's because that's how all movies were filmed up until the fifties. Do you know, by the way, that the story, which may or may not be true, of how thirty-five millimeter got picked to be the size of film? Mm -hmm. Well, the first big buyer of motion picture film. From the Kodak Corporation is Thomas Edison. Oh, makes sense. And Thomas Edison, and they come to Thomas Edison and say, well, you're buying all the film. How big is a frame of film? And he said, oh, about that big. And he pointed to his thumb, and they got a tape measure, and they measured the distance from the top of his thumb to his first knuckle, and that is 35 millimeters. Wow. Now, is that story true? I I don't know. I don't know. But but it is definitely Thomas Edison that picked that 35 millimeter size, and it was right. a square. No, it's not actually square. It's slightly wider than it is tall. Yeah. Four by three is 35 millimeter, and when they and that's of course what a TV is, a, yeah. a standard def TV. Um, and so now they go, well, how are we going to compete? And they start coming up with, let's make wider versions. And you have VistaVisions and Panavision and Cinerama and 70 millimeter. And VistaVision is a really weird one, which is instead of having the film run vertically through the camera, they had it run horizontally through the camera. And they stuck two 35 millimeter pieces of film side by side together. And that created this extra wide format. Wow. It's not exactly the same as 70 millimeter, mm-hmm. but it's similar. And that is what they shot this film in and it was all just this desperate attempt to get people to leave their houses and their little tiny four by three tvs and see big images on the big screen we're still doing that now oh yeah absolutely yeah what's weird to me about it because everyone worries so much about these day and date releases and Mm -hmm. how are we gonna people still go into the movies yeah yeah but you see but what what we talk about on collider you know we discuss these questions because it's starting to feel like an event as opposed to what the movies have been before with the streaming services and what have you, it feels more like going to the movies because of the expensive nature of it as well with right. refreshments and everything. It feels like now it's becoming more of an event thing. And a lot of experts are starting, well, not a lot, but a few experts are saying that they think within 10 to 20 years, it'll be like going to a Broadway show where you have to, the, the tickets will be a wow. certain amount, but you go, but and then all the other smaller movie theater houses will die, and it'll be just the exclusive 
theaters that create that show you a cinematic experience with the highest end video, highest end audio. I, I don't know if I see that happening. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I certainly we see the movie theaters that have the reclining seats, and they yeah, they're something. really souping them up now. Yeah, yeah and they're exp- and they're more expensive. Yeah. There's still something about going to the movies, mm-hmm. you know, and people still go. It's a communal experience. It's a commu- It's a different experience from seeing things at home. Yeah. And I, a curmudgeon who frequently doesn't want to leave my <laughs> home at all, yeah. I still love going to the movies, yeah. you know. Um, should we get into the film? Let's do it. Starts with some titles, mm-hmm. as many movies do. But these titles are revolutionary. Yeah. This is Saul Bass. This is his second major titles. Saul Bass is a, uh, was a huge graphic designer, and we still, to this day, see things that he created because he created some of the most important logos in the history of the world, including things like AT&T, the United Way, United Airlines, Quaker Oats, Minolta, Dixie Cups, and the Girl Scouts. All of those icons you see, and you can I'm sure you can picture AT&T in your head right now. Mm-hmm. Probably picture that you for United Airlines. Yeah. That's Saul Bass. And Saul Bass comes to do film, and he has sort of a revolutionary idea, which he believes that the titles could say something about movies. Like if you think of old movies, basically the titles was like – it was a name tag. It said, here's the name of the movie. Here are the people that star in it. And that was it because they thought it was about getting information across. And what Saul Bass thought was that you could create a climate for a story that was about to unfold. That was what he said. And it started with Man with a Golden Arm. That's his first title. Oh, yeah. Otto Preminger. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think this is his second title. Okay. And uh, and you could see that this is not just, hey, the name of the movie is Vertigo. Here's right. who's starring in. It is a totally different thing. Yeah. And he went on to do titles well into the 90s. Inclu- you know, he, wow. went, he did Goodfellas, Cape Fear, West Side Story, Broadcast News. So three movies that we've done wow. on the Cinephiles are Saul Bass titles. <laughs> well, respect. Um, and the other thing, of course, as we move into these titles that we get, is Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, man, this this is maybe in my top three favorite Bernard Herrmann scores ever. I mean, just, it's so hard, the whole entire score is heartbreaking. Just heartbreaking. That's how it feels throughout. Yep. He cannot grasp what he's trying to grab through the whole film. He is a broken man through the whole freaking film. And that score really uh, accentuates that and punctuates it in certain scenes as well. I'm going to say something that might shock you. Okay. I think this might be his best score. Wow. And and I know that we're already going to – we're going to talk about the people replacing Citizen Kane. I mean – But – and the Citizen Kane score is magnificent. Is. But this is this is a guy now 26, 27 years later. No, wow. 17, 17 years later. Mm-hmm. And there is a maturity and a depth and an emotionalness to this score that I don't think is anything, I, anything else he's done. I think you had a valid point there, Steve, because I, I think this is his most effective score ever for a movie. It's Because do, it's doing so much more of the heavy lifting oh, yeah. in this film. Because we got a lot. I mean, Citizen Kane does not have dull moments, filmically, dialogically, no. anything. This movie has a lot of a dude driving around, yeah. looking for somebody, and that's a a lot of that is Bernard Herrmann. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to that, but right now we're in the middle of the title sequence, and we start with a woman's face. It starts with an eye, and then we move really almost deconstructing her face, eye, mouth, moving along her face, and finally moving in. 
and we get into these spirals. Mm-hmm. And spirals are going to have a real important symbolism throughout the film Vertigo. Mm-hmm. What do you think all these spirals are representing? It's a good question. Uh, I've always felt that it's supposed to just keep you like this idea of, you know, uh, hypnotism, hypnosis, especially that time, what, the 50s, like the psychology, mm, the advent of psychology, sure. this idea that like, you know, what do we explore, how, how going deeper into the mind, what that would feel like, that kind of thing. Mm. That's what it feels like to me whenever I see those spirals. And it's just giving you that mood that this film is going to be a very psychological film uh, and that you will not like what you see or what you yeah. discover about yourself as you watch the film I, or this guy. I think, too, there's something endless about spirals. Yeah, good point. There's something kind of trapped and mm-hmm. and dizzying and spinning and not kind of – Getting out of it. And, of course, the other thing that's happening is to some degree, you know, we're examining this person's face, this woman's face. And what is this movie going to be about? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's going to be about deconstructing and making up and remaking the face. Mm -hmm. And voyeurism. Oh, absolutely. So you're watching this person's face in a way to – like, uh, yeah, in a way, like a voyeur would watch the face. Like you're studying it so deeply. It's very intimate. and Exactly. It's studying it so deeply. That is a thing we're going to get into in this film. And I think yeah. this is what proves Saul Bass's point is that this title sequence and the music and what we're looking at is setting us up for things that we're not even – don't know what we're getting into. Yeah. And the camera pulls back and we're left – we go back to that eye and the name Alfred Hitchcock comes out of the eye. <laughs> it's a great opening. And we go right into – in what I think is a very modern opening for a film, an action sequence. Action sequence. Yeah. In a Hitchcock film. Yep. A chase sequence. Yep. Chasing someone across the rooftops of San Francisco. Of course, almost all of this is done on a set. Yes. And there's like, there's a hand that hits the ladder and I can just see the Hitchcock storyboard that this is exactly the framing. This is exactly the lensing. This is exactly what he wanted to see. We see this criminal climb up the ladder. We see him run away. We see a a policeman chase after him. We see uh, a guy in a suit chasing after him. And we realize very quickly that guy in the suit is Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart. The crook jumps from one rooftop to the other and onto like a peaked angular roof, climbs up. The cop does it. He slips a little bit. He climbs up. And then Jimmy Stewart goes to make the jump, hits the peaked roof, slips down, grabs the uh, rain gutter, which bends, and he's hanging there. Yeah. And he looks down into the alley below him, and we get the first of the vertigo effect. And this is something we've seen in Jaws. We've seen it in other places. This is it's called a zolly or the vertigo effect. Mm-hmm. And it is you have the camera on a on a dolly and you pull the camera back while you zoom the lens in, and that's mm-hmm. what creates this weird, distorting, disturbing effect. Yeah. The cop comes, sees that he's in trouble, comes back, offers his hand to help him. Jimmy Stewart is shook. Tries to get ready to reach his hand out, and just as he's about to. Down goes the cop. Yeah, he flies right over him. Yep. Or tumbles right over him. And then you see the bad CG of him falling, which is always hilarious to me. Not CG, but. Well, bad, whatever. Bad, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, and then we're left with uh, Jimmy Stewart's horrified reaction yep. that he has caused the death of this cop. Yep. And seeing his the cop's body down there as well. And we, like, and this is. Um, He's such a great uh, leading man for Hitchcock because he's so unafraid to show his fear and uh, vulnerability and 
just looking at to- pathetic or weak at times in his weak in in his when in his weakness looking pathetic and in that moment where he's hanging off the gutter and he's just like ah, you know like all that face that he's making you're just like yeah this is a man who is now going to suffer with this for quite some time um have you ever had vertigo no i have had vertigo twice mm. Through periods, like through stretches, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, you you can have vertigo. Like it, it can come and then go after a few days. Uh, did you have like an inner ear issue, or did you? I don't know what it was. Oh. I, I would get up out of bed, and all of a sudden the room would like all of a sudden you just it, it was really just looking down from my bed. I would feel like I was like thirty oh. feet high. Uh, one time I had it uh, when I was doing that reality show for USA, the co- combat mission show that I back in like two thousand one or two. And I was climbing up a 20-foot rope ladder before I knew I had a thing called vertigo. A 20-foot, like, and as I was trying to put my leg over the side to climb back the other side, all of a sudden, I I froze on the wooden bar because the floor all of a sudden became 75 feet down. And I thought I was going to slip off the rope and just break every bone in my body as I fell off this thing. And I was petrified for 20 minutes on that wooden thing. People had to climb up to get me off of it. And I had no idea what this was. No idea what this was. I Then I went back the next day to try to do it again, froze again. Wow. So And that's and then when the second time it came. So it's something that can happen for whatever reason. My friend was bedridden for three days when he had it. No, there are people that are like, they can't. They, can't, they, they stand up and they throw up. Yeah. It's so It's insane. Yeah. Well, and, people, and I know that if you have... Uh, there's been kinds of brain damage where it affects the, mm. the inner ear, and that's one of our main senses mm. is your sense of balance. And then can't walk, can't, right. you know. And then they have to have their other senses compensate mm-hmm. for that, you know, after a certain amount of time. That sounds awful. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. Terrible. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live 
live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Um, and we're going to see what the consequences mm-hmm. of this up because we end up sort of in this art studio. Jimmy Stewart's sitting there, you know, kind of playing with a cane. Mm-hmm. We know it's sometime later. And we're with his friend Midge, yeah. Barbara Bel Yeah. She's great in this movie. Miss Dallas. She is so fun. Yeah. And so likable. And so sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, and perfectly named. Yeah. Midge. That's just yeah. a great name. For a friendly woman who wants to be with you and you're not 100% into it. Yeah. It's just such a perfect name. Yeah. And and she's like some kind of graphic designer yeah. or some marketing thing and she's doing drawings for clothes and they obviously have a long mm-hmm. friendship. And we hear that he's going to get his uh, – uh, what is it? His corset taken mm-hmm. off because he's <laughs> obviously got some injury from whatever happened and he's not going to need the cane anymore. And she's trying to figure out – What's going to happen after that? Yeah. What are you going to do? What do you mean? Well, what are you going to do? Why don't you quit the police force? Boy, this sounds so disapproving, Midge. No, no, it's your life. You were the bright young lawyer that decided he was going to be chief of police someday. I had to quit. Why? Well, it's because of this fear of heights I have, this acrophobia. I wake up at night seeing that man fall from the roof and I try to reach out to it and I, I, it's just... It wasn't your fault. I know, that's what everybody tells me. And the way it sounds in the film, and I'm curious to your opinion, mm-hmm. is it sounds like he's saying that he always had it but didn't know that he had it mm-hmm. and that now he's aware of it. That's yeah. what he, they seem to be saying. Yeah, that's. I think that's how it happens. You you have uh, experiences with it when you're young but you don't think, but you don't know what it is. And then when you reach a certain age and it happens to you, then you understand what it is and you uh, con- it, then it puts everything in context. So it can be debilitating. So to, so it makes sense that he's wanted to stop being a cop and all this kind of just because he didn't want to put himself in a situation where that would come back for him again. Uh, and so when he's explaining it to Midge, that, that just makes all the sense in the world to me as well that he now realizes that this is a condition he has had for quite some time. And now that he's, it's a, he's aware of it, the last thing he wants to do is be in a position to bring it back on. That is what he says. And I'm not 100% sure. You think he's scared? Well, I, well, there's no question in my mind he's okay. scared. Okay. But the question I have is sort of what's, what's happening and what has happened before? Mm-hmm. Because like what's going to happen in the scene is he comes up with – she says, by the way, that she asked her doctor and the doctor says he's going to need an emotional scare or something, a traumatic emotional event yeah. to take him out of having this vertigo. Yeah. Now that's some weird – Yes, <laughs> that doesn't really make sense. Putting a leech on them for blood. <laughs> yeah, but but well, it's funny. I mean, like Hitchcock is not the most logical of filmmakers. No, he is creating a world for you to have suspense in, and you don't necessarily need to question it that much. In this particular world, we are establishing that a traumatic event might cure him of the vertigo. So that's a little weird. Yeah, a but little then weird. he decides, which actually is more like correct. Um, 
therapy that yeah. he is going to do. Uh, what's the, I forget what the term is called, uh, but he is going to do a little at a time. Yes. Um, and there's a name for it, but I forget, which actually is something that people do. It's like, oh, if you're afraid of, you have agoraphobia, you're afraid of going outside. Well, you go a little bit and then yeah. you go a little bit more and a little bit more. Right. And that's the thing that he's going to do. And he first gets a little stool. We'll start with this. That. What do you want me to start with? The Golden Gate Bridge? You know what? Stands on it. Yeah. Now, I look up, I look down. And it's scary. Yep. This is Hitchcock's real genius, I think, is he's going to make a guy standing on a one-foot-tall stool suspenseful. Yeah. And she goes, well, that's no test. And she pulls out now the stepladder. Now we got a three-step you know, step, yellow stepladder, which I totally can picture from my grandmother's apartment. I believe it was green, not yellow, but I can picture it. <laughs> um, and he goes on one step, look up, look down, look up, look down, no problem. Goes up another step. This isn't going to be a big deal. Look up, look down. I look up. I, I'm going right out and buy myself a nice tall stepladder. Take it easy now. All right, here we go. And then there's that close-up of his foot as he climbs up to the top step. Yeah. And it's so amazing that it is stressful. Yeah. Genuine stressful. He looks up. He looks down. He looks up. But now when he looks down, instead of looking straight down the step... He notices that right next to the step is a window and we're on like the second or third floor. And now he gets a view that's kind of similar to looking down that alleyway where that cop died. And he goes woozy and he goes down and she catches him. She she catches him. Yeah. Yeah. He faints in front of her. Yep. Incredible. Now, here's here's why I bring this – why I ask this question. Yeah. Six months before he had the incident with the cop. Could he have climbed up a stepladder? Probably. I think so, too. Yeah. So that's why I go like, I don't think he had this oh. all the time. No. I I, it's de- I think – Well, and, and this is the thing is like I think the reason you cast Jimmy Stewart is because he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. And we trust that Jimmy Stewart is a good guy and he's a likable guy. And I think that is how this movie is set up. And part of me wonders, was Jimmy Stewart always a good guy? Like the character, this Scotty? character, yeah. I don't mean Jimmy Stewart. He is a, he is a he is a World War II hero, right? <laughs> like, and if you want to know about him, I think it was in our. Uh, it's a uh, wonderful life. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a wonderful life. Where we give his bio. Yeah, uh, he is an amazing guy. Yes, but this character of Scotty, I go like, what's up with this guy? Well, I think Scotty throughout the film has had some thing has had some. Yeah, he's not a I don't know if he's a good guy. I don't even know if good or bad applies to Scotty. It's this guy is a is a broken guy. This guy is a weak guy. This guy yeah. is uh a guy who who uh is a bit of a dreamer um and not a realist. He's a bit of yeah. a romantic. Right? Cuz you look at Midge. Midge is Midge is absolutely who he should be with. She loves him to death. She pushes him. The stepladder is a moment. That, yep. The best relationships are with you with someone who pushes you sure. to kind of like confront these things that you don't necessarily want to confront. And he does. she does that for him and not with any kind of like – with a complete simplicity of it. Like this – nope, that's nothing. You got to do this. And so the fact that he does not want her but instead as we find out later in the film wants to go after the dream woman, that tells me that Scotty um, – has always put himself in these positions where he's not. I mean, because he's not with anybody. He's put himself in these positions where he he he's romantic about these situations. He's probably fallen in love with a suspect, 
it has passed. Well, this is this is exactly the point I wanted to talk about yeah. because because one of the other things we find out in this scene is he asks Midge, "Hey, when are you ever going to get married?" Yeah, yes, Midge, that. Yeah, and there, there's great <laughs> looks from her. Oh yeah. And by the way, what Barbara Belgetti says is that Hitchcock directed those looks. He was very specific about just look up right now. Right. And and, and that's a person. Sometimes that little look up as as an editor, that's all you need. Mm -hmm. And there's one moment where he calls her kind of mom. Yeah. And she gives a look. He obviously doesn't like that. And then this other moment when we talk about getting married and what we find out is they were engaged. Yes, they were. For about three weeks in college. Mm -hmm. Was Midge serious about marrying him? I think so. Me too. 100%. Mm -hmm. Who called it off? He did, Scotty. Scotty called it off. And yet he's still hanging around with this woman mm -hmm. who's obviously in love with him. But this is what I mean, that he's weak. Even with someone he, he knows has feelings for him, the ego stroke of being around someone like that helps him because he has just he has a weakness about himself. And having someone around who constantly is trying to build him up that he can be crabby with, that he can be uh, uh, moody and with. Use and use. And right. Yeah. And she'll keep coming back. Yeah. He likes that. Well, and this is what I mean about is Scotty such a good guy? Yeah, no, I don't think he's a good guy. He's not a good protagonist. Well, because, because I think the way I first saw the movie mm -hmm. when I was in high school or college or whatever was I went, I love Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. He was a perfectly great guy, sure. great detective, good guy. Then he had this horrible experience mm -hmm. where this cop died that he felt guilty for. And then he went into this other situation where he's trying to do the right thing. This is how I'm interpreting right. this movie a long time right. ago. And then he gets in this other thing where this other horrible thing happens to him and that drives him around the bend. And now I watch the movie and I go, huh. Yeah. I don't know how. I don't know who Scotty was. He's a rich guy. We, mm -hmm. we get the sense because he says, she says, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm just going to, you know, wander around. Yeah. I am, you know, a man of independent means or whatever he says. Yeah. So he has the money and he did decide he wanted – he was a lawyer and he wanted to be the chief of police. So he had these ambitions. And now he's just kind of said, yeah. nope. Yeah. He's not. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, and the thing with him uh, that you come back to, and this is what you, your experience, Steve, I think is the very natural progression of watching this movie. When you watch it the first time, if you know anything about Jimmy Stewart, you feel sympathy for Jimmy Stewart yeah. for this character. You think he's just a uh, bad place, a wrong place, wrong time, getting used by other people in these situations, and then suffers these tragedies along the way, mm -hmm. uh, including the ending. And so you think, oh, this is, you know, he's a hard luck guy. But as you get older, you're looking at this guy, and you're like, this is not a good guy. This is a yep. guy who is uh, um, I don't, he's manipulative, mm -hmm. he's mean, he's privileged, privileged, because yeah. like you said, he comes from rich, so he's used to getting his way. And so uh, I, this is not overall, this is not a good protagonist. And he rarely is a good protagonist in Hitchcock movies. Yeah. Rear Window, he was Rear like, Window, we had a lot yeah. of interesting stuff. Yeah. And, and, but I wanna, one thing about it is that it's not that I don't feel sympathetic for No, no, of course. Him. And this is one of the keys to movies. I know I've said this over and over again. We don't like characters because they are good guys. Yeah, right. We like characters because they're interesting. And, and I am completely on board with Scotty mm -hmm. and care about him sure. and feel bad for him when things go wrong. And yet – and then there are also things that he does that I go, oh. Yeah. 
whoa, what happened there? Well, he's like that good friend you have that's like, for the most part, he's good. And then he, he's got these weird relationships or these weird situations in life. You're like, ah, I wish you wouldn't do that. Like, why do you do that? Like, why? You know, you there. everyone's got someone like that. There is a mutual friend of ours whose name I will not mention. <laughs> um, but I remember talking to an, uh, a friend from a different group about this person. Mm-hmm. And they had met once or twice. And I'm telling stories because they're funny stories about this person's life. Yeah. And... As I'm telling them, and I see the expression on my friend's face, which was basically, why the hell are you friends with this horrible person? <laughs> I heard the set stories I was telling and went, man, from an outside perspective, yeah. this guy sounds awful. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and, of course, the other thing that we find out before he faints is that um, he got a call from another college friend. Mm-hmm. This guy, Gavin. He hadn't heard from him in a long time since the war. He kind of dropped out of sight. The call is from somewhere in the mission, which they call Skid Row. Mm-hmm. Um, the mission is, by the way, that's where my dad's office was. Oh, wow. So that's the Latino part of town. Um, and Damn right. a t- part of time I spent a lot of time in, it was not Skid Row. But that's what they called it. Yeah. Um, and and she goes, oh, well, maybe he's you know, a bum. And he goes, well, I'm kind of a bum too. Maybe we'll go have some drinks together and be bums. <laughs> and that's kind of the last thing we hear. And so that's where we're going to head off. Um, after he faints, we head off to the docks. The mission district is not by the docks, by the way. <laughs> and the first thing we see on the exterior of the building is Alfred Hitchcock. Yep. This is his cameo walking by camera. Is he carrying the thing? Is he carrying, carrying the toolbox? Yeah, something? toolbox yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I always get confused because he also has another cameo. I don't think it's in this film, but he's on the cameo where he's like sitting in the dining room mm-hmm. reading a newspaper or something. I can't remember. I don't remember which one. That which is. film that's in? Because I, I get confused because they have that really stark red dining room in this in this film too. I bet on YouTube someone has edited oh, together yeah, all Hitchcock cameos. Sure, that must be there. Sure. If there is, we will look for it, and I'll put a link on the video. There we go. Um, and we go into this meeting, into this office, uh, and this is. Uh, uh, all shot on a set that we see outside. We see like docks and big machinery and stuff being loaded. Yeah. And that's all rear projection. And this is a really cool looking office, really well designed. In fact, it's so cool that Hitchcock asked the production designer, whose name is Robert Boyle, who did a ton of Hitchcock movies. Mm-hmm. He said, you know what? I love that office. Can you build an exact replica of that office for my study in my house in Beverly Hills? Oh. And so this office became Hitchcock's actual office. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It is. Um, and there we meet uh, Gavin Elstrid, his old college friend. And we have some s- small talk. He asks how he got into the shipping business. And he says, oh, he married into it. It was with his wife. And Jimmy Stewart's like, this must be interesting. And he says he finds it rather dull. Mm-hmm. And he's been back in San Francisco for a while. And he just doesn't like it because the city is changing. Right. And we see this picture on the wall. And it's sort of old time San Francisco. And Jimmy Stewart goes, like all these. Yes, I should have liked to have lived here then. Color, excitement, power, freedom. And it ends up that this guy is obsessed with old San Francisco. Yeah. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, what is the character of his wife Madeline supposedly obsessed with? Is a painting. Is is a painting from old San Francisco, a character from old San Francisco. In fact, that is all his obsession. Right. So naturally in his plan – and I should say – Anyone who's listened to the cinephiles know we spoil all movies we're going to talk about. Very good point, Steve. Yeah. Um, and some of those, like, you know, if you listen to our podcast on Enter the Dragon sure. and we spoiled the ending, 
you know, who cares? Right. Everyone can kind of figure out that Bruce Lee's going to win it in the yeah. dragon. There's some movies like Fight Club and like this one where I go, you know what? You really should watch this. I don't want to rob you of the surprises and twists that happen in Vertigo. Yeah. And we're going to – not only are we going to spoil them, but I want to spoil it right now because one of the interesting things to talk about, I feel, is what's really going on. Yeah. Um, And to talk about it while it's happening rather than when we find out what's really going on in the third act of the film. And so I'm going to give all of you a chance (laughs) – to stop the podcast, yeah. go to cinephiles.net. I'm going to right now. <laughs> see that you can purchase the Blu-ray of Vertigo or stream it through Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the film. Think about it. Contemplate it. Then come back here and we're going to spoil it. Yep. Welcome it back. <laughs> um, did you enjoy the movie? Good. I, now we're going to talk I about hope it. you did. Because <laughs> what this whole thing is is a plot for Gavin Elstrid uh, Jimmy Stewart's old friend to kill his wife. Yep. And he's setting up right now to kill his wife. And the fiction that he is creating is based on what really is his obsession, which is old San Francisco, which is that there is a ghost from the past who is haunting his wife and is possessing her. And he doesn't know what's happening. That's what he tells Jimmy Stewart. And of course, at first, Jimmy Stewart goes, find a psychologist. Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> he's yeah, yeah. crazy. You know, and and he goes, no, I know it sounds crazy. And then he tells Jimmy Stewart what's going on. She'll be talking to me about something. Suddenly the words fade into silence. A cloud comes into her eyes and they go blank. She's somewhere else, away from me, someone I don't know. I call to her. She doesn't even hear me. Then with a long sigh, she's back. Looks at me brightly. Doesn't even know she's been away. Can't tell me where or when. And she's going places. She went to this lake and sat and looked. He's like, well, that's not a big deal. And he says, well, yeah, but when she came home, she had driven 94 miles, according to her odometer on her car. I've got to know, Scotty, where she goes and what she does before I get involved with doctors. Uh, Scotty's not interested. All right, I'll get you a firm of private eyes to follow her for you. They're dependable. Good boy. I want you. Look, this isn't my line. Scotty, I need a friend. Someone I can trust. I'm in a panic about this. When when someone, even an old friend you haven't seen in a long time says, I need a friend, yeah. what are you going to do? Well, you know, that's usually when there's lie and lawn darts in the back of the <laughs> trunk and a, and, a, oh, and a body bag usually. I need a friend. Holy crap. That's where you definitely get into like, what level of friend are we talking <laughs> yeah, about? Right. Am I really are this level? Are we talking about the like... You know, garden tools and shovels level of friend? Or are we talking about, like, you need 20 bucks to buy some, a sandwich? Yeah, right. Because you could have the 20 bucks. <laughs> Just don't get me arrested. There's only so many people that I pull out the lie and Oh, yeah. That's a very small list. It's maybe um, – yeah, I count it on my hand. Yeah. Um, Gavin is a terrible person. Well, yes. But I mean, like – He's terrible on so many levels. Yeah. Because he calls Jimmy. Do you think he's rich enough to know what Jimmy's going through? Of course. So he knows, right? He has to. The yeah. whole plot is based on that he knows what Jimmy's going through. Right, right, right. So how did he get access to that information, do you think? I, I, this is, so first of all, this is a crazy plan. <laughs> I mean, this is a really – like if you think about all the moving parts that are right, happening right, right. for him to kill his wife in this method, <laughs> it's really crazy. It's like forensic files and But stuff. we do establish early. He asks him you know, mm-hmm. about the accident mm-hmm. and Jimmy Stewart says, well, I can't go out to the bar at the top of the mark, which is the Mark Hopkins Hotel, which is a very famous mm-hmm. bar. But there are plenty of bars on the street. By the way, there's a lot of drinking in this movie and a lot of discussion of drinking. From that time, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, That's what men did, damn it. Yeah. I've seen Mad Men. <laughs> <laughs> I love, by the way, that uh, he offers him a drink and he says, oh, a bit too early for me. I yeah. love that. And I remember this from my grandparents is there was like five o'clock was cocktail time. Yeah. And people had cocktails. And this idea that, and, the, and there's also people offer people cigarettes. I remember that from a, a kid that like in my parents' house, there was a thing of cigarettes for guests. Yes. Just my parents didn't smoke. Right. My grandmother did. Right. My uh, grandfather, when I was younger, did. Um, like that was just normal that you had. There were cocktails at five and well, cigarettes. Did. And yeah, yeah, different world. <laughs> um, but yes, he, Gavin has come up with this entire scheme yeah. based on the fact that he knows that his friend cannot climb stairs. Mm-hmm. That is the whole basis of his alibi. For this whole thing, or not his alibi. Well, it's, I think all the questions he's asking uh, Scotty is uh, so they can find out what Scotty's limits are. Like yes. What he's able to do, what he can't do. And so he can start constructing the plan around that to set him up to be a patsy, essentially be a patsy, to be a witness uh, yep. Yep. to what happens to his wife so that he can get away and run off with what is possibly Judy, but turns out to be someone else. Um, and by the way, Gavin, I don't, Gavin never pays for this, right? Gavin never gets caught. Gavin never – nothing ever happens to Gavin, Only right? if you watch the strange European added ending. What? Yes. There's a European added ending? Yes. Right. The Hitchcock Do we want to wait on that one? We'll wait on okay, I'll tell okay. you what it is at the very end. That some bitch gets away with everything in, my, in the American visions I've seen. No. It, well, it, well, that's what's interesting about the movie is it's not really about that. No, really. I know. You know what I mean? It's about something totally different. Yeah, it's about Jimmy. Scotty. And, and he says, look, just come – to Ernie's, which is a famous San Francisco mm-hmm. restaurant, we're heading to the opera or something that night, and look at her, and then you can decide if you want to help me. Which is a weird thing also because it's going like, I believe that just by seeing this woman, you are going to become uh, interested in following her around. Yeah. So not only does he know right. that Scotty has this issue with vertigo and how severe it is and what it's co- and how that's going to help him in his plan – but apparently he knows enough about him to know that he's going to look at a beautiful blonde and then want to follow her around San Francisco. It's an old college buddy, right? Yeah. So he knows what his old college buddy was into and does and what his limits are and how gullible his old college, college buddy is. This is where I go back to like my first image of who I thought Scotty was mm-hmm. based on how I liked Jimmy Stewart when I saw it when I was younger. As I get older, I'm like, oh, no. Whatever he is, some of that was there when he was in college. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. When he was dumping Midge, when he was enga- getting engaged to Midge and then right. dumping her after three weeks. And Gavin obviously saw something that this is a guy he can manipulate. Yep. Um, so we go to Ernie's, um, and, which is a 90 year old San Francisco restaurant. It closed in the late 90s. Everything here was shot on a set. The exterior is on a set. The interior is on a set. It's all beautifully designed, but it looks exactly like this restaurant. That makes sense. And Hitchcock loved this restaurant. Yeah. Hitchcock loved San Francisco. He first went up to San Francisco uh, after shooting Rebecca. Oh, yeah. Fell in love with the area, bought a house in the Santa Cruz Mountains. With, it had a vineyard. Loved shot Shadow of a Doubt up in um, Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. And then he he really, really understood and loved San Francisco. And you can see it in this film. He loved Ernie's so much that for the extras that he hired in, to be in this movie, he had food shipped from Ernie's. Wow. Had the Mater D's come down from Ernie's to, to help serve and prepare it. And they ate Ernie's steaks and chops and <laughs> – I believe that it was a salad with Roquefort dressing, New York steaks, baked potato, and banana fritters was the meal. This is good old school, hearty fare. It's good eatings. 
<laughs> and what's really funny is after they had been eating this really good food all day in the shoot, yeah. what did they have to do? Time to break for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Jimmy Stewart is sitting at the bar. Yeah. And he looks over and j- as the music starts and the camera pushes in on this woman and we see her in a green dress talking to Gavin. With an open back. With an open back. A gorgeous, gorgeous dress, again, designed by Edith Head, yeah. who we talked about in our Rear Window podcast. And if anything, the the, the dresses in this movie are even more stunning yeah. than yeah. they were in Rear Window, I think. Well, and I like the first way you see her because of the symbolism of it, right? He's looking through a doorway. He's looking at something in a way that's almost um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It's not real. He's yeah. – it's all through well, imagination. I almost thought it was a mirror at first. Exactly. And then you think it's a door – and then it's a doorway. But I think that's what Hitchcock does on purpose. So you don't know – because you're going to find out later that Madeline is Judy. You don't know which mirror image of yep. uh, Gavin's wife that you're going to see here and which is the real thing and which isn't. And mm-hmm. so having uh, Scotty see Madeline for the first time in that way helps him to create this fantasy about Madeline, that she's this kind of – thing, you know, that's uh, unreachable, untouchable that he wants to have. And mirrors are very important in this film. And the color green is very important in this film. We're going to get a lot of it. And they get up and she walks towards him and we Mm -hmm. start to see some of her face. And Jimmy Stewart turns away. And then you see Kim Novak. Yeah. And she is stunning. Absolutely stunning. It's an amazing introduction. Yep. The color control, the music, the camera work, the beauty that of this person, mm-hmm. it is – because what that character has to do in addition to seducing visually mm-hmm. and getting Scotty obsessed with her, it's got to get us us obsessed with her. Exactly. And I think the reason red is on those walls, it's red flag, red is yep. danger. And when she turns that – if you notice right behind her face – the red gets brighter, mm. and Jimmy is almost—he's almost—he's almost in awe of seeing like something yep. heavenly. He's so not worthy to look upon her. If you look at his body language, I'm sorry, Scotty, rather look at his body language. He's almost turned away in shame from her, uh, but he has this. But I think the vibrant red conveys his lust for her, his attraction, growing attraction for her. Absolutely. Well, and, 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 you know, color control is yeah. really important. Yeah. And what convinced. color goes really well with red? Yeah. Green. Yeah, exactly. And is there anybody else in that bar wearing any green? No way. Yeah. You want her to pop, and she certainly does. Mm-hmm. And it goes to this thing, too, of, like, who Jimmy is and what does Gavin know about Jimmy? Why does Jimmy take this case? Yeah. Because he's attracted to her. Yeah, exactly. Why does Gavin say, come look at her at Ernie's? There's no – it doesn't make any sense except I know you're going to see this woman Mm -hmm. and then you're going to do what I want you to do. Mm -hmm. Because you're a sucker. Because you're a sucker. Mm -hmm. And you've been a sucker since college and you're a sucker now. Well, And also somewhat unethical because if your reason for helping your friend is that you're attracted to his wife, Mm -hmm. that's weird. (laughs) And it's going to get weird. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're going to get to some stuff that's like, wow. Yeah. Um, so it's the next day. He's on the street. He's looking at an apartment building. This is at the top of Knob Hill, which is among the most expensive places in San Francisco. <laughs> Beautiful view of the city. No surprise. Right near the Fairmont Hotel. And, I mean, this is, you know, a really nice area. Mm-hmm. He watches her come out of her uh, building. Mm-hmm. She is – is she wearing the gray suit? Yeah. Okay. This gray suit is very important. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kim Novak 
hated it. Didn't <laughs> want to wear it. Gray does not go well with blondes. That's sort of traditional fashion color sense. Mm-hmm. As you know, I know a lot about fashion. Yes, you do. I, it's very important to me. Look for his line coming out soon. <laughs> oh, God. Can you imagine the Steve Morris fashion line? You never know. <laughs> wow. What he does with T-shirts and jeans is amazing. It's amazing. I've never seen anybody make it work so well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I had to take a moment. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, she didn't want to wear it, and of course, uh, you don't say no to Alfred Hitchcock. Of course not. He knew what she should wear, and what, w- and he knew, he wanted her to appear as she kind of materialized out of the San Francisco fog. Mm-hmm. And it's so striking what she's wearing. Yeah, and she walks up to her car, and what color is her car? It's green. Green. Yeah. Right. Green. Green Jag right. Mark Eight. Right. right. Um, and she drives away. And he follows her past the Fairmont Hotel, um, down past almost exactly where my grandmother's apartment was. Mm -hmm. Um, And he follows her in this alleyway. And there's something I noticed, and I noticed it in Rear Window, but even more strikingly here. Mm -hmm. My mental images of Jimmy Stewart are black and white. Yeah. You know, because It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Smith, those are the movies, Philadelphia, like those are the movies that I just associate with him with. And I've seen the Westerns and a lot of color films with him too. I don't think about it so much. I never remember that his eyes are that shade of blue. Mm-hmm. They are strikingly, stunningly mm-hmm. milky, crystalline blue. I mean, they're, he has gorgeous eyes. Yeah. And particularly in this film and in several scenes where he has to look so obsessed, yeah. they just pop right off the screen. Oh, his eyes have always been the key to his acting, in my opinion. It's funny, but in my mind, they were black and white eyes. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I picture him. Um, she goes down this alley. Gets out of the car. He follows her into an old building, into a basement, um, and we see her move into this florist shop. Mm-hmm. And see again the gray outfit against all the colors of the flowers is right. amazing. And this is the Podesta Baldacci florist, which is very very famous florist. Mm-hmm. It still is open. It was founded in 1871, Whew. and they shot. They actually did shoot in the florist shop. And it was so hot from the lights yeah. that the flowers wilted almost instantly. So they had to continually replace all the flowers in the shop all day because they kept wilting after every take. What? Because it's hot. And, you know, the you know old-style lights, man, it could be 110 degrees in that set. So you're right, you're right. Just blasting on that. And, again, great, great color control. Mm-hmm. And he's watching her through a crack in the door. We see a reflection again in the mirror. Yep. And we see her buy this small, very specific bouquet yep. that becomes very important. And he closes the door quickly, goes out to his car because she's coming out and he is following her again. Yep. And they head out to the Mission District and to Mission Dolores. And a little bit it's going to be a tour of San Francisco mm-hmm. because it means so much to me. This is you're now four blocks from my dad's office. Okay. Um, so I grew up in this, you know, going to this area all the time. The Mission Dolores is the oldest building in San Francisco. It was okay. built in 1776. Wow. And it's part of the Spanish um, mission um, movement where they built missions like – and all the places in San Francisco that have a San or a Santa in their name probably has a Spanish mission in them. Santa Cruz, oh. Santa Barbara, San Juan Capistrano, San Rafael, um, and of course San Francisco. Okay. And these – Friars, Franciscan friars came and founded these missions. And this just shows you how our perspective on the world has changed. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid and we had classes in California history in like fourth grade, 
it was a story about how these great missions came to California and brought civilization and did all these good things and made friends with the natives and <laughs> taught them things. And if you look at the history now, that ain't the story. Nope. It was about a bunch of people enslaving the natives and forcing them to become Christians and beating them and raping mm. them and doing all sorts of terrible things. Right. And Yenipro who's like the main friar, he's the most famous one. And there's a big statue of him on Highway 280 south of San Francisco mm -hmm. pointing off into the distance. It maybe wasn't such a good guy. <laughs> um, but that's where they are right now. They're in Mission Dolores, which is yeah. built in 1776. And he follows her into the mission. And we see a historical marker side as she goes by. And there's just great, great lighting, lighting as he walks into the beautiful old Spanish mission. Um, and now we see an interesting thing that Hitchcock does throughout this movie. And there are other examples of it, which is that I don't know any filmmaker who did this. He, he would go shoot on location. Mm -hmm. For the wide shots. And then he would go shoot on a studio for the close-ups with rear projection. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone who does that. It is so bizarre. And so you'll see Jimmy Stewart walk into the actual cemetery mm -hmm. and then you'll see a shot where it's in a studio with a with a movie going behind him of mm -hmm. the cemetery. Really weird. Yeah. Um, and he watches her as she sits in front of a tombstone. Mm -hmm. The The film has been flashed, which is – I don't think we've talked about this on The Cinephiles. Okay. So this is a weird one, which is that you take your film, you have your negative, it's not exposed, mm -hmm. and you take your negative and you put it in front of a light to expose it just a little bit. And you can expose it for like one stop. And it basically brings up the blacks. So the blacks never get to full blacks. Okay. And so what it gives is this sort of foggy, everything's in kind of a fog mm -hmm. look. And you see it throughout this film that they use this sort of weird – I think it's flashed. I don't have it 100 percent, but that's what it looks like to me. Right. Um, and he watches her from a distance. We walk through the trees. We see the church spires in the background. Mm -hmm. And she walks by, doesn't see him. And he walks up to the tombstone and there's a big music steam as we see yeah. Carlotta Valdez, 1831 to 1857. Whoever she was was 26 years old. Yeah. This sequence of him following her goes on for a long time. Yep. And it's slow. It's stalking. Yeah. Yeah, he's a private investigator, but he's also stalking. Well, if you took the gig yep. to help your friend, yep. you're a private investigator. Right. If you took the gig because you found yourself attracted to the woman. Then you're a stalker. Then you're a stalker. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be walking on that line. I mean, we're not at full stalker yet. I think he thinks he's a private investigator sure. at this point. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a point where even he doesn't think that. Yeah. You know, he goes up to the Palace of the Legion of Honor, which is this place that was a few blocks from my mom, where my mom grew up. Uh, it was built in 1915 as part of the World's Fair, the Pan Pacific mm -hmm. Exposition in, uh, in San Francisco. Beautiful art gallery right on the top of a hill with a view that's like ridiculous up there. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend you go to San Francisco, go visit the Palace of Legion of Honor. Okay. Walks into a gallery, sees her sitting and staring at a painting. Yeah. He walks in, looks up at the art, and we see the painting for the first time. And this is Carlotta. Yeah. Beautiful woman in Spanish sort of 1800s dress mm -hmm. with a necklace. We look in at her, at her bouquet that she's holding. Mm -hmm. It looks exactly like the bouquet that Madeline is holding. Right. He looks at her hair and it's pulled back and twisted into a circle and he looks at Madeline's hair, same hair. Right. The hair is really going into a spiral. Yep. Spirals come up in this movie. Mm -hmm. 
And he goes back to the docent, whoever it is, and asks about the painting. They said, oh, that's Carlotta, the portrait of Carlotta. Mm -hmm. Hands him a little uh, catalog, which has a picture of the painting. And she's just staring at the painting. He walks away. And outside, she drives. He follows. Mm -hmm. Now we're come to the old McKittrick Hotel, um, which really was a building there. It's been torn down since then. Um, And she gets out. Goes inside, he walks out and along the fence and looks up mm-hmm. and he sees her in an open window taking off her jacket on the second floor. Mm-hmm. This is something that's going to come back too. And he goes into the hotel. Yeah. Now we're on a set back in Hollywood, beautiful old Victorian set. And he's looking around and he sees the woman behind the desk and asks about the woman on the second floor. Yeah. Oh, would you tell me who has the room on the second floor in the corner, that corner? Oh, I'm afraid we couldn't give out information of that sort. Flashes his badge when she doesn't want to tell him anything. Yeah. Is that still his police badge? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so a little underhanded, but okay. Sure. And she says, oh, okay. Says that her name is Valdez. Carlotta Valdez? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> sweet name, isn't it? Foreign, but sweet. And Scotty asks if she sleeps there. No, she just comes to visit during the day. Now, when she comes down, don't say that I've been here. Oh, but she hasn't been here today. And he goes, no, I saw her come in. And she goes, no, I've been sitting here the whole time. I think she was oiling her rubber plants. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Something weird like that. It's really weird. And he goes, no, I saw her. And she's like, no, I would have seen her. She says, well, you want me to go up and check? And he goes, yeah. And she goes up and checks and calls down to him and says, she's not here. Scotty goes up, looks goes into the room. She's not there. Mm-hmm. Looks out the window. The green car is gone. And he and he says her car is gone. And she goes like, what car? Yeah. Okay. What happened? Well, since she's in charge of the situation, Judy is. Right. I think she checked in or did whatever she did to, and snuck out a back entrance, got in the car and drove away. Why? Because it keeps pushing the idea that he might be going insane about her as well. Why would she want him to push that idea? Well, because she wants him to get like – well, I think because they want him to follow – it's a good question. What do I want her to get into? So again, the plot is that the Gavin has hired a woman right, right, right. to impersonate his wife. Well, I'm explaining to oh, listeners too. Um, to impersonate his wife and to show him that she is going crazy or somehow possessed by this person, Carlotta, right. living her life. Okay. And and now she has gone to what we later find out is yeah. the house that Carlotta actually lived in. Yeah. And so he follows her there. Why is it good that she disappeared? Now, I think it's good for the movie because sure, it's sure. weird. Mm-hmm. But why would the character of Judy as yeah. Madeline yeah. want to make him confused about whether or not she was there? Well, um, Maybe he didn't. she didn't want him to get too close to her? Maybe, or it adds to the mystery of the whole situation. I mean, that definitely does. Yeah. Uh, because there's, I mean, there's weirder ones coming up of mm-hmm. like, what was going on with Judy? Yeah. Because in the movie where there's this character, Madeline who is being possessed by Carlotta, yeah. all of this behavior makes a lot of sense. But in the movie where there's this person, Judy, who's playing the part yeah. of Madeline and being doing like an extended improv, mm-hmm. it gets weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, okay. Later on, he's back at her place, sees that the green car is there, sees that the flowers are in the window of the car, and we go back to see Midge. Yeah. And the first thing <laughs> Poor he's, Midge. 
poor Midge. <laughs> Midge does do a thing later on that is a couple things that are not cool. Yes. Definitely not cool. Well. But I'll still say poor Midge. Yeah. Um, uh, and the first thing he asks when he walks into the apartment of the woman that is in love with him is, Who do you know that's an authority on San Francisco history? That's the kind of greeting a girl likes. Oh, this hello, you look wonderful stuff. Just a good straight, who do you know that's an authority Lord on Drake? San Francisco? No, thanks. <laughs> and she recommends Saunders at Berkeley, who I'm assuming is like a PhD. And he mm -hmm. goes, no, no, I want the small stuff. Oh, you mean the gay old bohemian days of gay old San Francisco? Juicy stories like who shot who in the Embarcadero in August 1879. Yeah, that's right. And she says, this guy at the Argosy Bookshop. Why, what do you want to know? I want to know who shot who in the Embarcadero in August 1879. <laughs> And he pours himself a very, very big drink, but she is already out the door to go to the Argosy Bookstore. Yeah. He runs out off after her, and we are off to the Argosy Bookshop, mm -hmm. which is based on the Argonaut Bookshop, which is oh. a famous place in San Francisco. Okay. And this is very much – this is 1958. This is middle of the beat era too, and mm -hmm. bookshops were a big place in San Francisco. Yeah. That's where Jack Kerouac and um, Allen Ginsberg and all those guys were hanging out. And we meet this interesting old guy who talks about Carlotta, and that's yeah. where we hear the story. Um, and the, and the story is that she was, you know, from a small town, and she met this guy. She was a dancer and singer in a cabaret, and I think the guy was not did not marry her. Right, got her pregnant, mm -hmm. kept the kid, dumped her. Yeah, and she became the sad Carlotta, alone in the great house, walking the streets alone, her clothes becoming. Old and patched and dirty. And the mad Carlotta stopping people in the streets to ask, Where is my child? Have you seen my child? Poor thing. And then she died. She killed herself. Um, and that that and that's when we find out that that was her house. Right. Um What's really weird in this scene is that it gets darker, mm -hmm. like noticeably, like mm -hmm. someone's turning down the lights on a dimmer. Yeah. What do you think that's – what do you think that's that – It's all about focusing in. It's all about like yeah. for – and for his mind, like everything is starting to narrow down. Like everything is starting to become in uh, a one-way mission. Like there's, no, there's nothing else he sees but this, but her, but this story, but all this is connected to Madeline. He's starting to become like just very obsessive with her. That's what I would say. I totally, totally agree. And yeah. I think it's – this movie becomes expressionistic. Yeah. It's not – I think this is his mental state. You know, And I don't know. Did Hitchcock play with those things in other films? Well, we're, I think that's why this film is so incredibly unique. It is so like a Hitchcock film and so much not like a Hitchcock film. And that's what makes it so uh, stand out from almost all the others. Yeah. Films is he uses techniques techniques in this film that he does not use in other films, and techniques that are very obvious to notice that he's using in this film. Yeah, that he doesn't use in other films. Well, and, and it's like the mental state mm -hmm. of our main character affects yeah the way we're seeing things in the movie. Yeah, and I think you're totally right. As that darkness comes into the film, it's him focusing in mm -hmm. and and deepening his obsession for this woman. It also, I think, invokes the audience and it evokes that this is going to get darker. This is going to get dark, yeah. to put it too, too big of a point. point on it. Because we're, as we walk through the Carlotta wormhole, 
uh, we are going to get darker and darker to what we end up seeing happening right by the Golden Gate Bridge. All of that bleeds right. from the Carlotta stuff. So it gets uh, – uh, there's no like comic relief a- as this progresses in this situation. Um, and they leave and Midge is like, you owe me. Tell me what the hell is going on. Yeah. And he doesn't want to share this so much. Mm-hmm. He does tell her a little bit. He says, you know – Husband, you know, someone believes that she's being possessed by someone else, and she's like, "Oh, come on!" And he's, he says, "I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what he thinks." Right. And then Midge asks the key question: Is she pretty? Yep. Midge notes. So again, we go into like, who is Scotty in college? Mm-hmm. Scotty, who got engaged to Midge for three weeks and then stopped. Yeah. That Gavin knew he puts dangles a pretty woman in front of him and Scotty's going to be in. And now Midge goes, is she pretty? She knows what's going on. Yeah. You know? And he and gives so did it. Gavin. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to get you a pretty woman because she probably – because a pretty woman probably broke up the engagement between Midge and Scotty. Yeah. Scotty might have seen another uh, – like another woman come down the pipe, another beautiful woman, and then threw off the engagement because he wanted to be with her and because uh, uh, she was unattainable. Yep. That's a great – I. I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah, certainly. And Midge, poor Midge, foolishly stuck around. Yep. You know? Um, I mean, well, I, you and I have both known of people who become into unobtainable, you know, people. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. I think Scotty's the worst. Oh, Scotty's the worst. He is the worst. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, he can't stop himself. No. And he doesn't want to listen to reason when nope. people are trying to tell him to stop. And Midge's response is like, well, I guess I'll have to just go look at the portrait. Yeah. I really wish she didn't look at that portrait. And then we go to, as she mentions the portrait, we dissolve to a quick shot of Kim Novak's face. Mm-hmm. Again, this is into his state of mind. Just right. like the dark, the, the room darkening, we're into his psychology. Mm-hmm. In a way, we're not in other Hitchcock films. Yep. He meets up with Gavin again and kind of runs down. He shows her the catalog. He talks about the things that she does. He talks about her hair. And Gavin tells a little bit. ends up Gavin knew more than he had told at the beginning. Uh, And one thing that we should have said is that she is – Madeline is Carlotta's Mm -hmm. great-granddaughter. Supposedly. Supposedly. (laughs) Right. Because there's no truth. No. You know, none of this is. But he says he's Carlotta's Mm great-granddaughter. Well, I think that explains it. Anyone could become obsessed with the past with a background like that. She never heard of Carlotta Valdez. She knows nothing of a grave out of the Mission Dolores or that old house on Eddy Street. The the portrait at the Palace of the Legion. Nothing. Well, when she goes to these places, she's no longer my wife. Then this is really straining credulity. Mm-hmm. Like, no, she doesn't know any of this. I know this. Her mother told me. Yeah. But didn't tell her. Right. Because she knows that she has Carlotta's blood and that Carlotta's grandmother, who is the daughter that Carlotta lost, killed herself at a young age. And that's why he's – mom was afraid of ever telling Madeline about this. Yeah. That's a that's a twisted little thing. It's a lot to carry. Yeah. But 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 Scotty buys all of this. Yeah, of course he does. Yeah, and his only response when he hears all of this is, boy, I need a drink. Yeah. Back to following. We see the Palace of Fine Art in the distance. Again, these are like the highlights of your tour mm-hmm. of San Francisco, I'm telling you. Um, we go back to the Legion of Honor. He watches her look at the painting. 
He moves through the shadows as she exits. They leave the Legion of Honor. They drive down along Seacliff into the Presidio, uh, past where right near where my grandmother's house was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see a sign for Fort Point. Fort Point is a built in 1793. It's a big brick fort. It's directly under the Golden Gate Bridge. Wow. It was one of the coolest places, one of my favorite places in San Francisco. Um, and it was, you know, an old port, an old fort to de- defend the harbor. Mm-hmm. And they had to build this um, – uh, like lattice work, curved arcing thing to because originally they were going to tear down Fort Point to build a bridge. Right. They said no, you can't do this, so they had to build this whole structure over it. And um, my family has connections to the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, so my great grandfather uh, Harry Hilp uh, owned one of the construction companies that built part of the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that's like he's like the kind of the. You know, the, the, my great grandfather sort of the great man of my family. Okay, you know he, you know, was a guy with a high school education who worked his way up through construction trades and became a really big construction guy. Wow, uh, built um, part of the Bay Bridge, built uh, battleships during World War II, built hospitals, all sorts of stuff. Hmm. And so again, this connect, you know, I have a big connection to the Golden Gate Bridge, and, and you know, most people in San Francisco do. Yeah, and so we drive up to the Golden Gate Bridge. It's it's beautifully mm-hmm. beautifully shot. And this is, again, Robert Burks, who shot Rear Window. He shot 11 of uh, Hitchcock's films. Mm-hmm. We see Madeline. She watches, walks over to the edge of the water. Jimmy watches her. It's nice to follow people in a trance. Yeah. Because they're not good at catching their <laughs> tails. Because he's not subtle. No. He's like 15 feet away from her in mm-hmm. the cemetery and standing right outside that gallery. He's the only other person here. Yeah, yeah. And all he's doing is staring at her, but she's just looking out into the bay, Mm -hmm. and she's pulling the petals off her flowers and dropping them into the water. And finally, she drops the empty empty bouquet into the water, and then she goes in the water. She jumps in, yeah. Jimmy runs down and follows him, runs down the steps. We're now into, obviously, a movie studio. Mm -hmm. Um, Grabs her, brings her back to shore. Carries her up the steps. She's bare, you know, unconscious, in a trance, not with it. And he calls to her, Madeline, Madeline. And she kind of, her eyes flutter open. Yeah. And then she closes her eyes. <laughs> and we're at Jimmy's apartment. He's putting some logs on the fire. Mm-hmm. And we're going, what happened to Madeline? And the camera pans off him. And and goes over to the clothes that are hanging in the kitchen. Yeah. And again, we're going, what happened to Madeline? <laughs> and the camera continues to pan to the bed where Ma- Madeline is asleep. Yeah. Kind of mumbling to herself. Mm-hmm. She naked in that bed? That's a good question. I think she's naked in that bed. Okay. You think he took off all her clothes? She was wet. Okay. He, he, at the very least, took off most of her clothes. Okay, fair, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, she's either, I mean, her shoulders are bare. We don't, yeah. you know, she's clearly, he has undressed her. He has undressed her. Whether or her. not he took all of her, but it's because, you know, putting someone in wet panties right. and bra into your bed is, I mean. And, that's and, not a good thing. There's a lot here that's weird. Yeah. Because what happened here? He had an unconscious woman in his car. Mm-hmm. He talked to her. She didn't respond. She's unresponsive. He drives back. He's driving for a while. Instead of taking her to the hospital. Doesn't take her to a hospital. Nope. Doesn't take her to her husband. Nope. Takes her to his place. Right. Takes off her clothes. Puts her in his bed. Yeah. A woman that he is obsessed with yeah. already. Yeah. So first of all, 
Now, and I don't think that this is like, oh, it was the 50s. Things were different. Right. I don't think this was cool in the 50s. Yeah. No, and, and in a lot of ways, it's less cool, yeah. you know. Um, here's the other weird thing. That ain't Madeline. She ain't unconscious. Right. Judy's awake. Yeah. Judy's pretending to be unconscious, mm-hmm. wet, cold, probably. Because, yeah. by the way, the bay is cold. Yeah. And you're with a person you don't know. Your eyes are closed. You're in his car. He carries you into a room and starts taking your clothes off. You do nothing. Like, that is really weird. <laughs> I mean, yes, Judy, you know, agreed to do this yeah, gig. Sure, sure, sure. This was part of it. Well, she didn't know this was part. She didn't know what how are you gonna know right. what Scotty is gonna do? You you can certainly know that he'll probably save you out of the bay. Yeah, yeah. But would you think that he would take you back to his apartment and take all your clothes off? No. That wouldn't be the first thought, no. What's interesting, too, is, by the way, he has undressed her without question. Mm-hmm. Later on, he will dress her. Yeah. You know? In, th- yeah. There is a lot of dressing and undressing. Mm-hmm. By the way— well, Stripping away, stripping away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in and, 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 and Hitchcock's mind, the dressing her was stripping her. Right. You know, there was something of taking out away her clothes, her armor, by putting clothes on her. Yeah. That were not her clothes. Yeah. And, and, and we know, too, because he says— well, let's get to it. Is yeah. that is that he? She's in the bed. She's unconscious, and then the phone rings, and he goes in to answer the phone quickly. Yeah. And of course, she wakes up and realizes that she is Madeline. Yeah. Realizes that she's in a strange man's bed with, at very least, very little clothes. Yeah. And he just says, "You're all right." Mm-hmm. And he give, closes the door. He walks out. He goes out into the. In the living room, mm-hmm. and the door opens, and there is Madeline in a robe. Yeah, red robe, right? Red robe, Ooh. looking looking stunning. Yes, as always. What am I doing here? What happened? Well, you fell into San Francisco Bay. I I uh, tried to dry your hair as best I could. Your things are in the kitchen; they'll be dry in a few minutes. Come on over by the fire. Her voice is great, by the way. Oh, yeah. Both of her voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she does a remarkable job. They're both totally convincing. What am I doing here? Yeah. How did this happen? It's a perfect affectation that conveys the unattainable, the innocent, this innocent, this helpless creature that he must f- protect. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, it's all of that. And what is missing emotionally from this moment? Good question. What? What, what, what would you, you say? You strip me naked. I'm in a strange man's bed. Yeah. Like any woman who wakes up in a strange True. man's bed without her clothes yeah. would basically freak out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would be, But that's not happening no, here. because this is part of the job. Judy knows this yep. is part of the job is to lure Scotty in. Yep. yep. Um, and, and he goes, you know, here, come sit by the fire. And he sets up these little cushions for her. Yeah. And she warily comes in and sits down and he offers her some coffee. Um, and there's a great, great shot kind of over her shoulder as she looks into the fire. And she's Ma- – the Madeline character is trying to figure out what had happened. I yeah. fell into the bay and you fished me out. He goes, that's right. You don't remember. No. You remember where you were? Yes. Yes, of course I remember that. Then I I must have had a dizzy spell and fainted. Where were you? At Old Fort Point. 
Out of the Presidio. <laughs> and she says she often goes there because it's beautiful at sunset, which it is. Mm-hmm. Beautiful place. She thanks him for the fire. He asks if she was where she was before. She says wandering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, and then and then she says, which he knows is a lie, downtown shopping. Right. Which is again a good performance from Judy to not admit to the fact that she probably doesn't know where she is. Well, that her character doesn't right. know where she is. Right. He continues to ask questions, so which she can like you're terribly direct with your questions. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. You're merely direct. And what were you doing there at Old Fort Point? Oh, just wandering about. And she asks him, where was he before? And he says the Palace of the Legion of Honor in the art gallery. Oh, yes. It's a lovely spot, isn't it? I've never been inside, but it looks so lovely driving past. <laughs> it's a great, great look from Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, yeah. Great reaction to that. It's lucky for me you were wandering about. Thank you. I've been a terrible bother to you. No, you haven't. Okay. Does it's hard to express this exactly, <laughs> but obviously Judy knew that he was there or she yes, wouldn't have jumped in the bay. Of course. Does the character of Madeline suspect that he was there for strange reasons in this moment when she says, Lucky you were there wandering about? Yeah. I think it's a game. I think she's playing a little bit of a game there. I think so too. Yeah. I think because she, Judy, wants Scotty to believe that Madeline is instantly connected with him on some fundamental level, which is why she's not reacting strangely to be in a strange man's house and not have her clothes on. She's act because they they are each other's destiny on some weird level. Yep. And she touches her hair and she says when you were and doesn't finish the sentence, Mm -hmm. but looks to the bedroom. And then she says there were some pins in her hair. Unfinished sentences are one of the writer's great tools. Oh, sure. What is the when you were and she looks into the bedroom? Yeah. What is she saying? Uh, What would be the finish of that sentence? uh, What's the first sentence she says? She touches her hair. Yeah. She says, when you were, looks at the bedroom. Undressing me. Undressing me. That's what I think too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she is – she she looks over it like there was this – because she wants to know where her hairpins are. Right, right. But the way of asking about it is like, hey, when you were taking my clothes off. Yeah. But then that would be awkward to mention the fact that he took her clothes off. It's not ladylike. No. And it's not gentlemanly to be confronted with that at least in this scenario. In their minds. Yeah. And and then he goes and gets her purse and she's getting her hair back up and she says, you know, you shouldn't have brought me here. You shouldn't have brought me here, you know. She doesn't say, how dare you? Yeah, right, right. She says you shouldn't have as if that was a naughty thing to do. Right. Um, There's definitely a mild flirtation on purpose happening from her end. Yeah, with with Scotty. Well, and again, the we have to consider the unconscious Judy, the not unconscious right. Judy, who also – so. We're kind of learning that Scotty gets obsessed about these women from afar. Yes. That's sort of what we're, you know, like that's who his character is. Yeah. Judy is a person who is going to play a character for a person who gets obsessed with people from afar. Right. And fall completely in love with that person in about the next 24 hours. Yep. Very little time. And the her first contact – literal contact with this person was while she pretended to be unconscious mm-hmm. and he took her clothes off. Mm-hmm. There's some weird stuff in here. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. 
Um, we're not dealing, and this is the thing that's the illusion of Hitchcock. Hitchcock directs these incredible, um, high-end looking films. Yes. But they're actually populated with some pretty unsavory people and unsavory characters uh, that make you feel like they are actually lower class in their approach to the world, even though they l- exude high class uh, physical appearance. And I love that. I, I would put it slightly differently, okay. which is I would say that Hitchcock believes that inside all of us are naughty little people. Yeah. With naughty little things that we want to do. That's fair. We're killers and we're dirty and sexual and yep. that's and all this other stuff is a veneer. Yeah. And I think his contention is with these films, most of his films, is that it's really fun to visit the world of the naughty stuff that we would never really do. Right. You know? And what's interesting, too, is particularly in Vertigo, I think, is he really is reminding you that this is a movie. Mm-hmm. You know you know what I mean? Like, you don't watch a Hitchcock movie and go, wow, that feels like real life. It's not like Italian neorealism or, yeah. or, you know, like an intense realistic indie film. It's like, no, I'm watching a movie. Yep. So there's a certain level of safety there. Mm-hmm. But there's also a certain level of, she naked in that bed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like... He he, because Hitchcock is a dirty man. I mean, yeah. let's be, you know, mm-hmm. like obsessed with his leading ladies. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. We're gonna get more into that stuff. So she says you shouldn't have brought me here, and he says, "Oh, I didn't know where you live." Mm-hmm. You could have looked in my car. Oh, but then you didn't know my car, did you? No, I knew which one it was. It's right outside here now. But I didn't think you wanted to be taken home that way. So. The first thing he, now, obviously, he's Scotty's lying about all this because he was following her. He knows where she lives. He knows where he's yeah. totally lying. But his first lie is, I didn't know where you live. Right. Then he says, I didn't think you wanted to be taken home like that. Well, if you didn't know where you live, then not being taken home like that was not an option. Right. You obviously are sa- you're saying that the first thing you said was a lie. Exactly. No, you're right. I'm glad you didn't take me home. I, I wouldn't have known you. Thank you. <laughs> There's the flirt. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Right on the table. Uh, and she introduces herself and asks kind of, you know, does he, he says his name is John and that she says, would you like to be called John or Jack? And he says, well, you know, my good friends call me John. My acquaintances call me Scotty. And she says, I'll call you Mr. Ferguson. <laughs> and he doesn't like that. He, well, of course, but he, she remains unattainable in that moment. Right. right? She won't fully give in to him. Oh, gee whiz, I wouldn't like that. Oh, no. And after what happened this afternoon, I should think maybe you'd call me Scotty. Maybe even John. And she will, from that point forward, call him Scotty. Mm-hmm. It's really good writing. She puts her hair back and asks what his occupation is, which he says is wandering about. Yeah. And then she tells him she's married. Yeah. And that's when he starts asking some more questions. Has this ever happened to you before, falling in the bay? And she goes, no. No, it's never happened before. Oh, I've, I've fallen into lakes out of rowboats when I was a little girl. I even fell into the river once, trying to leap from one stone to another. But I've never fallen into San Francisco Bay. Have you ever before? No. It's the first time for me, too. Then he says, I'll get you more coffee. And as he reaches for the coffee, he touches her hand. Yeah. And it is very pointed in the way that it's filmed. Mm -hmm. And she notices it, and he notices it, and there's a moment... And then the phone rings. Yep. And everything freezes. Here, I'll get some more coffee. It's amazing that Gavin knew to call at that particular <laughs> moment. <laughs> um, uh, and he goes up. 
Now, here's another question. Did Was it part of Gavin's plan that she would end up naked in his bed? Maybe not, but it certainly was. In As soon as she threw herself into the bay, it was to get him to rescue her. Yes, absolutely. So I'm sure they've talked, to the po- they talked about the possibilities of what would happen. The question is, do you think Gavin was following Jimmy? Scotty, who was following mm. Madeline. That's what I think. And that's why I think Gavin calls at that time because Gavin's been following. He like gives. He probably looked at his watch. He goes, I'll give him 20 minutes and then I'll call. Right. Right. Well, his explanation is she hasn't come home. Where is she? Right. Which makes it, which he could, so he could be sitting at home. Yeah. But the other thing is, is later on in this film, and again, we're spoiling everything. Yeah. But it becomes fairly clear in Jimmy Stewart ass, were you, she was Gavin's girl. Yeah. She was sleeping oh, yeah, yeah. with Gavin. Judy was sleeping with Gavin. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he talked Ju- her into playing Madeline. And I think it wasn't – I think she did get paid. But I yeah. think in Judy's mind, she was going to run off with Gavin. Exactly, which is what he confronts her with at, in the bell tower at the end. Right. So n- when Judy begins playing Madeline, yeah. she is thinking, I am doing this for Gavin, who I am in love with, who I'm going to go off with. Well, do we ever know that she's in love with no, Gavin? No, we, we don't. Right. See, I think it's more a, a union of convenience monetarily. Could be. I yeah. think Judy – look what Judy works at. What she works at a what? Uh, when we Magnus. find out. Yeah. It's a it's department not, store. It's not a high-end job. So right. she finds this guy who's rich. Yes. Uh, he probably – and Gavin probably planned this out for quite some time. He probably scoped her out, got together with her, saw that she had the kindly measurements of Madeline, then slowly but surely seduced her. Then said to her, "Hey, will you? you uh, this is the plan I have. I'm going to run away with you, but we got to get rid of my wife. We got to get rid of my wife. Help right. me. This is a college friend of mine. I'm going to call him. I want you to do this. Get him obsessed with you, and then I'll throw her off, and then blah blah blah, and then we'll run away together. So, all of that was set up by Gavin. But Gavin holds all the cards throughout totally. this entire movie. And so, and I don't think moment, he cares about Judy at all. No, he didn't give two shits about Judy. He doesn't want to be with Judy. It's something yeah. else there. She's a tool for him to get mm-hmm. what he wants. Where he really wants to be, right? And so uh, that's why this whole situation, that's, and Gavin calling, all of that, uh, Gavin is the one running this whole situation, the whole operation. But it's weird to go like, what are, what are which we can't ever know, but what mm-hmm. are Judy's feelings about Gavin? And what are, yeah. and because here's, there's two scenarios that I see. Yeah. One scenario is I have this old friend, he has vertigo. Our job is to get him to follow you, yeah. but not be able to rescue you when you go up the tower and kill yourself, and that will be the witness to my wife's suicide. Right. That's scenario one. Has nothing to do with him falling in love with her. No, no. Scenario – and maybe that he's attracted to her and that helps compel him to follow more. But sure. but scenario two is your job as Madeline is to get this guy to fall in love with you. Right. And that's going to bring him even more obsessively to the tower and – you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like those are two very different things to ask Judy to do. Yeah. And those create very different situations when she wakes up naked in the bed and now she's having this somewhat flirty conversation. Right. And because the thing that we don't get to know is, is Judy playing the role of Madeline who's flirting with Scotty? Right. Or is Judy from the Jump Street yep. interested in Scotty? First time I ever used the expression the Jump, Jump Street. Street I like that. I don't think Judy's interested in Scotty until uh, – they have the scene by the tree, the right. cut tree. I think that's when she, and that's when she realizes that Gavin is not worth her time, and that she has an actual, genuine connection with uh, Scotty. Right, and that is important because that's what turns the whole movie on its head. Is that she starts to have feelings for Scotty, genuine feelings, genuine yeah. because she sees Scotty also as a fantasy 
a perfect guy, right. a caring guy, a vulnerable guy, a guy who has his own demons that he's dealing with. So, which is the illusion of Scotty. Scotty's actually a pretty dirty guy, and uh, uh, will follow his proclivities as he sees fit. Well, and and one can assume, and, and we can only construct. We never actually meet the real Gavin. No, like we don't know who that guy is at right, all. Right, exactly. But we can construct that he ain't a loving, warm, no, emotional, no, no, no. cuddly guy, yeah. or passionate guy. Mm-hmm. Where Scotty is, yeah. Scotty is passionate and is emotional and is vulnerable yeah. and is ups- genuinely obsessed with someone that she's pretending to be. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. her. But when he gets the call from Gavin and he says and he talks about, no, she's here and she doesn't remember anything and this is also where we hear that Carlotta killed herself at the age of 26 which is how old Madeline is and right. then he looks out and she's gone yeah. and the car's gone and the robe is left on the counter <laughs> um, and the green car drives away and who pulls up but Midge, Midge. and she says well now Johnny O was it a ghost was it fun <laughs> so she's been spying on him yep so there's not just one obsession in this movie. Yes. Midge's obsession. People don't talk about Midge's obsession enough when they analyze this movie. Yeah. And Midge's obsession is just as powerful as Scotty, uh, Scotty's obsession with Madeline, but in a She's different not as crazy. way. Right. It's a different way. She's like, I'm going to get my man. I mean, how old is... so? So first, the and Hitchcock felt that Stewart's probably too old to play this role mm-hmm. because Jimmy Stewart's in his fifties here. Yeah, Kim Novak is in her twenties. Yeah, uh, Barbara Bel Geddes is maybe in her thirties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are they in college? How were they in college together? Right, right. It, it doesn't all. It doesn't. You know, it is no, what it is. No, that's why they try to frump her up by giving her that hairstyle and those glasses <laughs> and that clothes. She's that she still wears. very cute. Midge, she is yeah. absolutely. Um, but but yeah, so the the like, why are you? Chasing after how long has she yeah. been chasing after this guy? Like Midge, move on. Well, you got a lot. You, you Nixon drove his wife on dates, so he was a chaperone for his wife. So you know, I love did, is love, man. I did not know that. I mean, yeah. Oh no, you didn't know that? No. Oh shit, yeah. Nixon to woo Pat because he was so in love with her would drive her on dates with other men so that she could see. His he was going to be with her no matter what. Like he loved her that much that he that was his way of showing how much he loved her. That he was still willing to drive her on dates with other men, and in a way, by doing that and all these other guys falling by the wayside, who was left standing? It was Richard. I have a friend of mine um, who was married to the woman that he was friends with for a long time and went after her <laughs> and took a lot of shit until she finally realized. Her feelings for him, and he went through the gauntlet to come out the other side to be with her. So, Steve, love is love, and people do weird shit to stay with to be with the woman. So, this is the first time in my life that I've ever felt that Richard Nixon was a kindred spirit. (laughs) Well, you're both uh, California boys. That's true. Yeah, yeah. He's a Southern California boy. It's totally different. Oh, Whittier, anger. Yeah, it's the next day. He watches Madeline get in the car. He follows her. It's the same route. He's getting a little frustrated. She's driving just all over the place. Mm -hmm. And finally, where does she drive to? His place. Yep, his place. She's dropping off a letter for him. It's a a formal thank you note and a great big apology. Well, you have nothing to apologize for. Oh, yes, I do. The whole thing must have been so embarrassing for you. Not at all. I enjoyed it. Talking to you. 
I enjoyed pause. Yeah. Talking to you. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that <laughs> there's another th- again, it's that ellipse in the in the screenwriting. Mm-hmm. It's like I enjoyed and he had a thought, but then he didn't express that yeah, thought. Yeah. And then he said, talking to you. Yeah. I think he's thinking about taking off her clothes. Of course, undressing him. Yeah. yeah. And she says, Well, I enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> in other words, it was cool. Yeah, code is code. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying this is how men and women should interact. No, of course I'm not. merely analyzing what I see happening within exactly. this film. And he reads a note. It's a very nice thank you note. And he says, oh, I hope we will too, mm-hmm. which is responding to the note. It says, hope we'll meet again someday. And she gets in the car. And I guess this is going to be over, except that he asks, where are you going? Yeah. And she doesn't know. Shopping? No. Well, uh, anywhere in particular? No, I just thought that I'd wander. Oh, that's what I was going to do. Oh, yes, that's right. I forgot. It's your occupation, isn't it? Yeah, well, don't you think it's kind of a waste for the two of us to... To wander separately? Uh Uh-huh. Only one is a wanderer. Two together are always going somewhere. (laughs) Which is a great line. But I think think we're going to go off together. And he runs up, closes his door, gets back in the car... Um, and there's a great look from her as she watches him walk away. And I think that look is from Judy. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we go up on a drive. Who's driving the car? She's driving. Interesting. Yeah. Who catches him when he faints? Midge. Oh. Women control this man. Women control this man. Women are more powerful in his life. No matter his protestations, women are the... An interesting statement in a, in a movie that is about one man who turns a woman into something else that that man falls in love with, and then he then tries to turn her back into the thing that she was. Right. Because there's a lot of male – well, maybe that's actually the point is his attempt to control yes. the thing he cannot control. Of course. Look, he's a terrible person to what he does to Judy later on to try to make her Madeline. He's, his obsession is ugly, but it's born from a place of weakness. Right. He is not – a, a person with strong self-esteem, strong self-confidence. No matter what you lo- think about Jimmy Stewart as a person, obviously, the oh, character yeah. of Scotty does not have a strong self-esteem, strong center, a strong moral core, no. or or any kind of strong. He's lost in these. He is a man in his fifties having this kind of obsession. It's uh, it's past his age to be having this kind of obsession over a woman like this. It shows. A middle-aged crisis. It shows a person who who did not learn the lessons of youth. Well, and again, it goes into this thing that I, I brought up at the beginning. Is like, is he a person who was a perfectly good person? Yeah. And then he had this traumatic event with this cop, and that sent him into a tailspin, and that has led him to be so vulnerable yeah. that he is uh, can be taken in this way mm-hmm. and be caught. Or was he? Kind of this guy always. I think he was always this guy. I, I think it's worse because of what's happened to yes. him. Yes. But that's what I think too. I think the seeds of Scotty as we see him were already planted. Yeah, and I think since the incident, his walls are even more down. His ability to construct those walls to keep him from pursuing his more baser instincts are lowered yeah. because of what happened in the incident. So he goes forward in this situation. the way Because look, he is like, oh, let's go together. Let's. This is your friend's wife. And yes. you're like, hey, let's get in the car together. Let's drive around, blah blah blah. Let's go do this together. Let me, uh, let me, um, let me pursue my obsession. There's no thought of like, well, nope. if I fall in love with this woman or pursue this situation, I have to deal with my best friend. It's not his best friend. Oh, well, my yeah, friend, my college friend, 
who asked me to help me to help me protect my wife. Protect my wife from killers. No, this is what I I'm glad we got to this point, which is that what he is doing to his friend, who is a horrible person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he doesn't know that. It is horrible. He is completely betraying his friend's trust. And there's no question that once he decides to get in the car with her, he's not being a detective anymore. And by the way, at this stage in the movie, if you're watching it for the first time, he's not a good person. Gavin is an innocent guy at this point in the movie. You don't know his nefarious deeds just yet. And so right now – I do think that in Scotty's brain, he's going, I want to help her. Right. Like I saw her try to kill herself. Mm-hmm. I want to get to the bottom of this mystery. Mm-hmm. But what I don't think he is facing is, dude, you're into this girl. Yep. That's why you're here. Which is why Mid showing up. Mid showing up that night uh, at the house to confront him about his thing with Madeline shows Jimmy shame. Oh, or yeah. Scotty shame, but Scotty doesn't want to admit it, so he gets mad at Mitch. Right. Um, it's a terrible person, this guy. <laughs> just saying. Well, it, what's that's interesting, why I enjoy watching it, though. What, what's interesting, though, is that I don't. I feel that way intellectually. Mm-hmm. I like Jimmy Stewart. Oh, sure, of course. I'm drawn to him. Yeah, well, that's why you cast Jimmy Stewart, right? It, it, that's what's so interesting about the film is that it's only on thinking about yeah, what yeah, he's yeah. doing that I go, "What you did? What? Yeah, you took her clothes off, and now you're and now you're getting in the car with her, and this is your friend who you're supposed to be helping, and." What's happening? Why are you doing these things? Yeah, yeah. And he's so he's driving. Uh, and by the way, we should say that all these driving shots are process shots, which means they're really just sitting in a car in a studio, and there's rear projection behind him. <laughs> they look really good. They don't bother me in the least. In this film, they don't. Yeah. And there are other films where they do. Well, Hitchcock is really good at this stuff. Yeah, yeah. He works with the same crew over and over again. He was got the same DP. He knows how to set this stuff up. Yeah. Because we got a lot of things that shouldn't work. We're going to see, in fact, pretty soon. Yeah. Um, we go up the coast uh, to what's supposed to be Muir Woods. Mm-hmm. And Muir Woods is Marin County, which is where I grew up. Muir, Muir Woods is like four miles from my house. Right? Wow. And, and strangely enough, I haven't been there in 30 years. <laughs> but it is a, gor- <laughs> a gorgeous place. Um, but they're not actually there. They're down in Big Basin, which is another big sequoia oh, place, okay. pretending to be Muir Woods. And the, by the way, I thought the music here sounded like Citizen Kane. Yeah. It was very Citizen Kane-ish uh, music, and we're talking about these big trees, and these big trees are 2,000 years old, mm-hmm. um, the oldest living things. And he asks if she's been here before, and she says no, um, and asks what she's thinking, and she says, All the people who've been born and have died while the trees were not living. Again, we're going back to this theme of living and death and cycles. Yeah. And then she says, I don't like it. I don't like it. I have to die. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who's who's saying this right now? Uh, to me, it seems like Judy is saying it as Madeline to keep the ruse going for longer to lure him closer. Because I don't think she's made up her mind yet one way or the other which way she's going to go. So I think that is 100% can be the interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> so is that it is the role of Madeline saying Madeline doesn't want to die because Carlotta is going to force her to commit suicide right. and she's facing her own death. Totally, totally makes sense. Yeah. When Madeline dies, Judy can't spend any more time with uh, Scotty. Right. So it could also be Judy saying, I don't want Madeline to die because then I can't spend any more time with you. I will say that's 100% possibly what can be happening here. 
Yeah, I and of agree. course they both can. Yeah, yeah, of you course. Know? Yeah, it's, it's that's what of... makes it a really good line. Exactly. That's why we do the cinephiles. Damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> why. And then they come up to which I've seen so many times the giant cross section of the tree where yeah. you see the rings of the tree and marked on it are important historical events, mm-hmm. and it says like the Battle of Hastings, ten sixty six, the Magna Carta, twelve fifteen, Discovery of America, fourteen ninety two, Declaration of Independence, seventeen seventy six, and she says. Somewhere in here I was born. Mm. And of course, she's not pointing to the end of the ring. She's no. pointing to the years of Carlotta. Mm-hmm. And what are the rings of a tree? Spirals. Spirals. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Another spiral we're looking at. And then she turns with this faraway look and she seems to be going back into that trance. Yeah. And he calls after her and she doesn't listen. And there's a great POV shot of her. She walks away through the trees and he follows her. And now we're back on a studio. Yeah. And we go so seamlessly and quickly from location shot to studio shot. And he asks, where are you now? Those trees. Have you been here before? Yes. When? When were you born? Long ago. Where? And now he's starting to mm-hmm. push. Madeline, tell me. No. Madeline, tell me what it is. Where do you go? No, I What takes you away? You. When you jumped into the bay, you didn't know where you were. You gasped, but you didn't, didn't know. Jump. I didn't jump. I fell. You Why told did you me jump? I fell. Why did you jump? No, I can't tell you. Why did you jump? What was there inside that told no, you to jump? Please. What? What? Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. And, fi- and she's starting to get upset and panicked. And he says, what, what do you want? And she says, take me away from here. Shall I take you home? Somewhere in the light. Promise me something. Promise you won't ask me again. Please promise me that. And they walk away. Yeah. I'm going to give you two interpretations again. One is Madeline struggling with the dreams and the demons and not being able to express herself and being afraid of her death and being afraid of the possession of the spirit that's coming into her. Yeah. And the other one is Judy saying, if you keep asking me this question, I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? You might not like it. Yeah. We're out on Cypress Point, which mm-hmm. is now we've somehow driven about an hour south, you know, way south of San Francisco. Okay. Um, and... She's it's a beautiful shot and there's a cypress tree there and there are waves in the background and we're off and we're in a real location and and she kind of is asking why he's doing this and he says I'm responsible for you now. You know the Chinese say that once you've saved a person's life, you're responsible for it forever. So I'm committed. I have to know. And she tries to explain it. It's as though I I were walking down a long corridor that that once was mirrored. The fragments of that mirror still hang there. And when I come to the end of the corridor, there's nothing but darkness. And I know that when I walk into the darkness, that I'll die. I'll never come to the end. I've always come back before then. Except once. Yesterday. And you didn't know. You didn't know what happened until you found yourself with me. You didn't know where you were. But the small scenes, the fragments of the mirror, you remember those? Vaguely. What do you remember? There's a, a room. And I sit there alone. Always alone. What else? A grave. Where? I don't know. It's an open grave, and I... I stand by the gravestone looking down into it. It's my grave. By the way, Judy is a great improviser. Yes. 
I mean, she comes up with a lot of stuff. Uh huh. Um, she's really good. She's sucking Jimmy in. Oh, Scotty in more and more. More and more, absolutely. And he he keeps saying, "If I could just find the key, the beginning, and 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 put it together." And she goes, "You mean explain it away? There's a way to explain it." Find that. That would explain it, wouldn't it? So two things about this. First is we hear what Scotty's trying to do, which is this sort of, if I can find the cause, I can solve the problem. Yeah. Which doesn't sound really reasonable to me. Um, he's not a reasonable guy. No. And then, But then her exposes that she's mad and she runs away and he runs after her and they embrace. Mm-hmm. And this is a great example of his mix of locations and studio shootings because we're on a real location. Then we're on a – she runs to him. He grabs her. We're on a set and there's yeah. waves in rear projection and we go back and forth. And I don't think if you're paying – not paying attention, you notice it all. Oh, yeah. Maybe. I think it looks great. And we have this great, great moment where they embrace. I'm scared. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I don't want to die. There's someone within me and she says I must die. Oh, Scotty, don't let me go. I'm here. I've got you. And he's obviously going to protect her, and they kiss right in front of the crashing waves, and the music is not romantic. No. It is dark and ominous, and she says, Stay with me. All the time. Kiss, and the waves crash. Yeah. In From Here to Eternity, Mm. when the waves crash while they're kissing on the beat, Deborah Kerr and Burt Lancaster. That is a romantic cue. That is also a woman who is with someone else, a taken woman, that Burt Lancaster is having this illicit affair with. Yet in that moment, it's a consummation right. of an attraction that we know is authentic. Here, which is what Hitchcock is so brilliant at doing. And by the way, he does not get enough credit for the exploration of moments like this that would normally be in a standard movie a romantic moment how he twists them or puts them on their head turns them on their head and a moment that you should feel this exuberance that these two are coming together you feel uh that this is a tragedy waiting to happen this is this is a, just not going to end well and the crashing waves here can cuz they're crashing against the rocks not onto the beach you right. know, in a kind of romantic way, they're crashing against the rocks, which is what? What happens to ships when the lights go out? When the lights go out, the ships crash into the rocks. When the lighthouse mm. goes out, that's the thing. And where she, both of them are, or at least she is, going to crash against the rocks because the light will eventually go out in the lighthouse, and that is what will happen. And so to me, there's all of that in that moment that's occurring, the, 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 the image or the symbolism of crashing against the rocks, because they will crash against the rocks. Someone is going to die here. Now, I love that. It's so dark, and I think, you know, Bar- Bernard Herrmann says that he, he's 40% of the movie. That's his description. I would agree with that a it's thousand a, percent. It's a big number, and the, the darkness of the music we're hearing, because what's so weird about this movie is, the first time you've seen it, yeah, you don't know what's going on really. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, okay, this guy's following her and maybe she is possessed and maybe she's not. And right. we just got to save her and they're falling in love and she's married and what's going to happen to the husband? I mean, that's the stuff you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And yet the heaviness of the moment is like really heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I was thinking too, and I don't have like an encyclopedic knowledge of Hitchcock films, mm. but 
how many of them actually have genuinely romantic I mean, like we just did Rear Window. That doesn't. No. You know, Psycho obviously doesn't. Um, like North by Northwest certainly ends with a romantic moment that right. implies they're going to get together. But I don't give a shit about their relationship. How about uh, From Paris uh, to Catch a Thief? To Catch a Thief is genuinely romantic. Yes. Yeah. Um, but in general, that ain't his thing. No, 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 no. I mean, there will be male-female stuff going on. It's his thing to show romance. But it's his thing to show romance in a way that's uh, not uh, – not the standard cliche romance that we see in movies. Because you know what? Sometimes people get together in ugly ways. And sometimes people discover romance with each other from ugly spots. Because guess what? We're not all beautiful, clean Norman Rockwell paintings. We're broken. We're shattered inside. And so how, however we find that one we're supposed to be with is however we find that what we're supposed to be with. You know what I think? And this is me psychoanalyzing Mr. Mm. Hitchcock, you know. Um, but Call him Al. Sure. Al. <laughs> That's what he prefers. That's what he prefers. Um, I believe he preferred Hitch. Oh, yeah. Um, So is that I think that Midge is Alma. Is I think Alma. His wife. Oh, right. Okay. I think. Interesting. Because he spent his life obsessed. Thoroughly agree with you, Steve. Yes. Is that and so and because of that, and Alma was a great, great mm-hmm. relationship and dealt with his uh, obsessions with his leading ladies. But I think it was a friendship, on, mm-hmm. on, in 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 a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and that he in his and again, this is why I'm psychoanalyzing him. Is that yeah. there is a separation for Hitchcock between companionship, yeah, and you know, married love mm-hmm. and sex, yeah, and obsession. And they are not the same. Right. You know, like the And so Scotty can have a great long-term relationship with Midge. Yeah. But he's obsessed with Kim Novak. Because he chases the excitement, not the yeah. uh, standard, not yeah. the safe stuff. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I th- Hitchcock thinks that Alma hated this movie or really oh. didn't like it. Oh, yeah. Is that – and what's interesting, I was going to talk about it at the end, but I'll bring it up now, is that – she wasn't around for much of the post because she got cancer oh. and had got very ill. And Hitchcock, it sounds like, had a complete breakdown without her. Of course. And that, you know, because she's his, his right hand. Yeah. And then he finished this film, and this is the film that she was kind of cold about. Mm. And and I wonder if it just cut too close to the bone. Yeah, probably. You know. Um, There's not another Midge-type character in any of his other films. No. I mean, honestly. That gr- has this much of a prominent role in it. Yeah. Yeah. And and she's kind of a sad character, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and yeah. So I think we've reached the the peak, the moment of we, this thing that's been building throughout the film, which yeah. is that they have – he kissed Madeline. He mm-hmm. kissed the woman of his obsession. He kissed the, the sad, tragic, blonde, austere woman. And things are going to get real different from this point forward. Yeah. So I think this is a good place to stop. What? No. I was reacting to the fans. That's how the fans. <laughs> that's how the fans are reacting as they hear you say that. Well, maybe they're just as tired as we are. No way. No. They love to <laughs> listen to us. Uh, I don't know what I don't know what that says about you people. <laughs> I think it says great things about them. <laughs> I think so too. They enjoy listening to um, us. But we will continue our exploration of Vertigo. Uh, in part two, do you have anything you want to add before we break? Yeah, don't uh, – if you haven't seen the movie, let's say you've seen the movie before and you're like, oh, no, I can listen to this one. I've seen it. Do us a favor in the break. Go back and rewatch it fresh again. So when you come back to listen to the second episode, 
you'll get even more out of what we're talking about. Trust me. We love these journeys that we take with you when you, even though we're not in we're not in the room or in your car or wherever you're listening to us, to watch you hear us break down or analyze the film, we kind of love the fact that you guys get so excited when you listen to our show after you've seen the movies freshly, seen the movies freshly, and then like get something out of it and go run right to Twitter or social media and tweet at us or, inst- or leave an Instagram post or Facebook uh, message us about how we broke down the movie and you hadn't seen it in a while and then you hadn't gotten the stuff that we got out of it and it's because of that. So take your time, go see, the, or rent the movie or watch the movie uh, somehow before this. Uh, this end of this episode and the start of this of part two for this episode. Trust me, you'll thank yourself for it. And uh, if you want to uh, send us a message about the first half of Vertigo, you can do it on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, just search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube. Leave reviews on iTunes, comments on YouTube. Of course, we love hearing on those stuff. We love interacting with you. If you want to support the show, do so on Patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. And we just announced that we're, I'll mention it again. We are launching a new thing on Patreon is Cinephile Shorts, which is we will do short conversations about movies that can violate the 10-year rule. Mm-hmm. They can be just really interesting films or not great films or bad <laughs> films. And uh, all you need to do is pledge more than $5 a month to um, to suggest something for us to talk about on the shorts. And that's just a little $1.25 an episode of The Cinephiles. It's not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But if that's too much money for you and you still want to listen to them, all you got to do is pledge $3 a month. Yeah. And even $1 a month is appreciated. We're really grateful for all your support on, yeah. on Patreon. And we're grateful for the patrons who uh, suggested Vertigo today. And, you know, don't forget, pick up that movie at cinephiles.net. If you want to reach me, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. But if you want to reach me on Instagram, which I'm struggling to start doing, I'm actually SR Morris1. Mm-hmm. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. See all the things I'm doing there and uh, have a little fun uh, having a fun film conversation with you. So come come and leave responses. I always love people who tweet at me about films. And I think that's it for this week. We will be back next week for part two of Vertigo on the Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.